Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. It's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. He went to bed and bumped his head and didn't get up in the morning. You remember that one? I do. Originally published in 1912 in the nursery rhyme collection, The Little Mother Goose. Who wrote it? Who knows? With so many of these nursery rhymes, we just don't know. We don't know how long it had been passed around before it made it into print either. A lot of mystery ahead today. Ever think about what that rhyme is really saying? We have a pretty good idea with this one because if you really think about it, pretty straightforward. The old man is dead. He's old, he had a head wound, and he doesn't wake up. What a fun rhyme for children to memorize. So many classic nursery rhymes that I definitely grew up with are pretty damn dark. And if you grew up in the US or the UK or a Commonwealth nation like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc., you also probably grew up with them. In the world of entertainment, including children's literature, Taking things associated with purity, happiness, and joy, and warping and twisting them into something more sinister, often for humor, is sometimes referred to as subverted innocence. It's been a popular trope in entertainment for a long time, and it still is. Think about Tom and Jerry, Ren and Stimpy, South Park, Family Guy, so many other comedic cartoons full of violence and depravity, right? marketed to the young for the most part. And some of the darkness in nursery rhymes can perhaps be explained by this concept, but not all of it. Most of today's classic Western nursery rhymes come from medieval England. They're often dark and bloody. Of course they are. Medieval England was often dark and bloody. Lots of heads were getting lopped off. A lot of people getting burned at the stake. And talking about the monarchy responsible for a lot of this darkness and violence was a great way to meet a violent end yourself. But it's so hard not to talk about tragedies and atrocities occurring around us, isn't it? It's so hard not to critique and gossip whoever's in charge. Always has been. The more depraved and salacious the tale, the harder it is to not share it. One way medieval, almost always illiterate peasants did share dark stories critiquing their cruel masters is thought to have been through nursery rhymes. And that explains the origins of some nursery rhymes, but not all of them. Sometimes nursery rhyme associations with actual historical figures and tragedy, just a product of imaginative folklorists and conspiracists who wanted to be uh, there to be fire where they saw smoke. Today, we're going to try and figure out which popular rhymes truly have dark origins and which ones are just, well, fucking weird. With their catchy rhymes and syncopation, not to mention talking animals and fantastical events, these are the kind of stories that have really stuck with many of us. I predict a fair amount of, oh yeah, I remember that one. On today's, I'm sorry, what was that? Oh shit, that is dark. Nursery rhyme, folklore, I'm so glad I live in an age of comparatively few people getting their heads cut off and being burnt alive edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome or welcome back to the Cult of the Curious. Hope your Halloween was fantastic. Thanks uh, Thanks to those of you who popped into the Scared to Death live show we did. Oh man, True Tales of Hallow's Eve horror. So fun. Uh, I was really happy with that. I'm Dan Cummins, Master Sucker, Suck Nasty, Fucked Up Nursery Rhyme Historian, Archivist, and you are listening to Time Suck. 
Hail Nimrod, Hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles and put a little extra sing song in our hearts today, Triple M. Uh, heading to Cincinnati for four stand-up shows this weekend. I think two of them are already sold out, so thank you. Uh, then I'll be just outside of Seattle and Arlington right after that. That show been sold out for a while. Uh, Denver and Loveland coming up next, then Tampa, and then Tacoma. For those of you in the Seattle area who wanted to go to the show in Arlington and couldn't make it. And then again, announcing uh, spring 2022 dates very soon. Having a lot of fun uh, conceptualizing this new, new hour. Important announcement about this year's Bad Magic Giving Tree. This year marks the third annual Bad Magic Giving Tree. Over the last three years, we've taken what would be the December Bad Magic donation for a charity and given it back to members of our Bad Magic family. Last year, Lindsay and I offered to match the total amount donated by You Amazing Meat Sacks, which was over 18000 That plus our matching amount, plus the 11000 from Time Sucks Patreon, allowed us to spend over 47000 on holiday gifts for the children of Bad Magic families. Hail Nimrod, looking to do it again this year. Uh, we estimate we'll be donating over 16000 from Patreon, plus Lindsay and I will match up to fifteen k. If fully matched, it's at least forty-six k. I have a feeling it's going to end up being closer to uh, $50,000. The average donation last year was approximately 50 bucks. All of it went to helping Bad Magic families have a better holiday. If you'd like to donate, we're simplifying it this year. Just go to Amazon.com, purchase a gift card, and when you fill in the box for two, enter the email address, GivingTree, one word, GivingTree at BadMagicProductions.com. Uh, Lindsay and I will be tracking the donations as they come in. We'll update you on the progress. If you want to be the recipient, you have to have kids. If you do, and you want to help give them a better holiday than your budget currently allows for, email us with your story at givingtree at badmagicproductions.com. We'll gather all the names of those who need help. Pick at random as many families as we can until the money runs out. Accepting nominations from now until November 16th. At that time, the names will be entered into the Giving Tree hat. We'll notify only the recipients ASAP to explain how they will receive their donations. Help us, help uh, some of you make your Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever other holiday you're celebrating, uh, one for the ages. We'll be sharing updates as we have them on how much money we have, you know, how many families we're helping. So fuck yeah, bro. Uh, I think I got to punctuate that with some air banjo jingle bells. Hey, fun stuff. Uh, one more thing. Let's talk about boners. I mean, merch and boners. Lucifina pinup shirt in the store now at badmagicmerch.com. Might not want to wear your uh, sweatpants while you're admiring this one. Or if you lady boner owners, might not want to wear spandex. No panties. That tugboat captain, going to be standing up straight. Seriously, it's a fun tee. Uh, pinup art is just so fun to me. Uh, maybe saying this uh, just means I'm old now. But leaving some of the clothes on comes across as sexier than all of it off. It's a mystery, mischievousness uh, with those pinup models. And that's it. Enough announcements, Meat Sacks. Uh, hickory Dickory Dock, it's dark nursery rhyme o'clock. Don't be a cock. Playboy, bok bok. Let's dive into a lot of learning mixed with a little bit of shock. Plagues, tyrants, medieval taxes, torture, ritual sacrifice, animal cruelty, murder by decapitation, fire, you know, being buried alive, all speculated, at least to be details and or the subject matter of various nursery rhymes. Nursery rhymes written for an audience of children, supposedly, maybe not only children though, uh, babies falling from trees, heads being chopped off in central London, children being sacrificed for the sake of sound infrastructure. Why were these types of topics possibly deemed appropriate to teach children? Packaging cute little rhymes starting most likely sometime in the 14th century. Uh, today to break down nursery rhymes, their history, importance, and possible dark origin stories, I'm gonna first explain how they're structured. Next, I'll explain why many are thought to have secret meanings and also why it's hard to conclusively prove what those meanings may be. 
Then after wondering how long they've been around, I'll examine what motivation medieval authors might have had to sneak dark adult messages into children's stories and how simple rhyming verses may have helped a largely illiterate population remember these stories through these rhymes. We'll look into how many parents have found nursery rhymes to be controversial for centuries. Then I'll explain why they have survived for centuries. Hint, kids just like you and me tend to enjoy some fucked up humor. Next, I'm going to explain how, while nursery rhymes might uh, be darker than a lot of parents are comfortable with, they definitely are extremely beneficial to young developing minds. They prepare our brains for speaking, understanding, and writing much more complex language later on. They help train our memories for being able to store an expanded vocabulary later on. There's a reason so many of us know all these nursery rhymes. They do their linguistic enhancing jobs very well. Finally, before our timeline today, I'll share why some old nursery rhymes have been altered or even removed from the list of commonly told children's tales. The world wasn't nearly as evolved a few hundred years ago, of course, as it is now. And there's just no good reason to keep telling some of these old tales. And then in the timeline, we'll go over when a number of popular fairy tales first showed up, what dark meanings they may have, uh, who might have wrote them. And it'll be fun just to recite some of these because they're uh, absurd and share some modern versions that people have been having fun with online. Uh, after breaking down numerous popular popular rhymes like Humpty Dumpty, Patty Cake, Patty Cake, Baker's Man, Ring Around the Rosie, Jack and Jill and more, and covering some history, like the story of Bloody Mary and the London Bridges to help understand some of these old nursery rhymes, we'll hop out of the timeline and examine some seriously fucked up children's classics from Russia. Of course, Russia. Ah, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Uh, Brazil and more. A lot of interesting ground to cover today. I hope you enjoyed learning about a lot of these rhymes. You probably, like me, memorized as children, but never really understood why or what the rhymes meant. Isn't it funny how we do that? As kids, often as adults, we learn so many things that we never really actually understand. We memorize the rhymes or we read the books, but we don't step back and wonder, why am I memorizing this? What is this thing I'm memorizing? Why am I reading this? Why is it important? What am I really learning? Well, today, you motherfuckers are going to learn a lot. I'm guessing. I sure as hell did. Uh, let's get started. Uh, first up, let's familiarize ourselves with the structure of nursery rhymes. Look into why they've been told for generations. Uh, structure of nursery rhymes, you know, very basic and simplistic. And they've been told for generations because toddlers have been really fucking stupid for a long time. Stupid fucking babies. Gosh dang, that's not accurate. Uh, not, not entirely. Uh, nursery rhymes are essentially a small but popular subgenre of children's literature. They're one of several ways to tell a kid's story, similar to fables, fairy tales, myths, tall tales, folk tales, uh, legends. Nursery rhyme is defined as a, a short traditional verse or song for children like Humpty Dumpty or Hickory Dickory Dock. Uh, nursery rhymes typically have a simple structure, often only a verse or two in length, sometimes, you know, very short. They tend to combine elements from fables, you know, as, as I said, myths and legends, as well as subject matter ranging from fantasy to harsh reality. And uh, they've been told for generations for a variety of reasons. They're a great primer for speaking and understanding language and story structure. Many of them have helped keep various historical moments alive as well. Nursery rhymes have often been used to help uh, you know, remember these historical moments. This element is uh, one we'll really explore today, how subversive many of them were when it came to helping current and future generations like not forget something it would be dangerous to talk about openly. Also, like fables, many of, uh, if not most, come complete with a moral lesson, cultural teaching tools to instruct children how their, how their parents, church, king, culture, or subculture wants them to behave, mostly. Some, to be honest, just seem like some nonsense. It has a catchy rhyme structure and it's some fun shit to say. Uh, not all nursery rhymes seem to have secret, secret meanings. Excuse me. Some do, some don't. Hard to tell which ones for sure do and what exactly that secret and or subversive or dark meaning might be because we rarely know who wrote them. 
most nursery rhymes do not have known authors. Almost all of them don't have known authors. Did you already know that? I did not. I was surprised by that. The lyrics were often spoken or sung aloud, uh, you know, passed between parents, nurses, and children for who knows how long before being put to paper and published. In some cases, uh, you know, the original telling may go back decades or even centuries before finally being written down. I think part of our collective interest in nursery rhymes may lie in the mystery that surrounds them. Right? We like a mystery. It's like some of them just come from the void or like they've just always been there somehow, floating around, just magic. I like thinking about how maybe in some cases, some random meat sack hundreds of years ago just came up with some rhyming verses he or she just thought sounded cool. Maybe they were fucking around in their loot inside their thatched roof cottage in some old shitty medieval village in jolly old England that really wasn't that jolly. They sang or recited something to their kids or nieces or nephews or something. They're like, hey, this, this is actually pretty clever. That's catchy. And then maybe the first kids who heard it spread it around a bit to other relatives and people around the neighborhood and just kept spreading, maybe mutates a little bit. Eventually it gets printed in some book and published, you know, uh, thousands if not millions of times over. And now centuries later, it's still here. You know, little kids, uh, 20, 30 generations later, still memorizing it. That's pretty cool. That's some serious staying power. It's like nursery rhymes were early viral videos or memes that are still getting clicks. Popularity is still pretty strong. Kids today continue to learn about Humpty Dumpty, London Bridges, Ring Around the Rosie and more. That is so weird if you really think about it. Uh, this all makes me think about the recent popularity of the hit Netflix series, South, Korea, South Korea's Squid Game. I got swept up in the trendiness and I, I watched it too. And I liked it. I liked it, subtitles and all. Uh, the children's games used to move the plot of that show or used to move the plot of that show forward. I'm not going to spoil it for you, are for the most part real children's games or games based on something real, including the namesake Squid Game. And no one knows who the hell came up with that game originally or why. But a lot of people remember playing it as a kid in the 70s and 80s. And I bet a lot of kids will be playing it again now. It's thought to originate in you know, South Korea in the 70s. But, uh, but again, no one knows for sure. True origins are a mystery, just like the true origins of so many nursery rhymes. How long have these mysteries been around? Who the hell knows? Uh, the ancient Sumerians, could have been telling their kids some form of a nursery rhyme, you know, thousands of years ago in Mesopotamia. The oldest recorded nursery rhyme in the English language is a little ditty called Ding Dong Bell, published first in 1580. If there's nursery rhyme in some other language that was published first, uh, we couldn't find it. My U.S. and English-based internet search engines just kept landing on Ding Dong Bell. We'll examine that nursery rhyme here uh, soon, early in the timeline. Uh, English nursery rhymes are the ones we're focused on here today. There are many others we will not look at. There is no human culture that has not invented some form of language games for the kids. Uh, let's look a, a bit further into why these rhymes were ever told in the first place, why they continue to be told. If the real messages of a lot of these nursery rhymes are often dark. Why were they told to children? Historically, until the last century or so, actually, it was common for parents to truly hate their kids. Right? I didn't, uh, I never really actually read specifically about that. Anyone who has kids, I mean, does know how fucking annoying they can be and how much fun it can be to take out some frustration with them by, you know, scaring them from time to time. And because kids inherently instinctively want to trust their parents and typically see their parents as their guides to life, they're often the easiest target in a parent's life when it comes to someone who can really, really scare the hell out of you, you know, with the right story, especially if you don't tell them that you're kidding. And back in the days when it was socially acceptable to hit kids with a stick and smack them in the face and stuff, it was also acceptable, expected even to psychologically torture and or mentally scar them forever to make sure they didn't grow up, you know, weak and whiny. And parents in the UK... Uh, originators in all likelihood of today's nursery rhymes took out their hatred of their kids partially through these rhymes often told as they were going to bed in the hopes that it would give them nightmares. And then if the kids woke up screaming from these nightmares, you know, they'd have another good excuse just to fucking beat the shit out of them in the middle of the night. And that was a lot of fun for them. 
Uh, JK, come on now. Uh, parenting was very different 100 plus years ago. Maybe not that, that different. Now, why were these told to kids? Uh, one reason is remembrance that I touched on already. Certain somewhat dark messages were sometimes snuck into nursery rhymes to help, uh, you know, people remember tragic moments from the past. Kind of like how the phrase never forget keeps the memory of the 9-11 terrorist attacks of 2001 alive in the minds of many Americans. Certain rhymes kept other moments, often tragic, alive in the minds of various generations of medieval people living in the UK. Also, they had to be sneaky when trying to teach future kids about the taboo actions of, you know, some ruler or whatever during the days when royalty reigned supreme in Europe. Openly poking fun at the king or queen was not a good way to stay alive and well. So you had to hide your accusations and complaints. And nursery rhymes provided uh, an effective way to smuggle in coded or thinly veiled messages under the guise of kids' entertainment. Seth Lehrer, one of the nation's leading literature scholars, distinguished professor of literature at the University of California, San Diego, says a lot of children's literature has a very dark origin. Nursery rhymes are part of a long-standing tradition of parody and popular political resistance to high culture and royalty. Also in a largely illiterate society, you couldn't expect people to correctly remember a long description full of a bunch of details. You had to keep the message simple and memorable if you wanted the message to be correctly passed around and kept alive for several generations. And a catchy sing-song melody, right, that helped people remember these stories. Uh, People knew intuitively back then what we know now based on scientific studies, that simple rhymes for sure make it easier to remember a message. A rhyme is one of many effective mnemonic devices, learning techniques that aid information retention or retrieval in the human memory for better understanding. Rhymes are easier to remember because they can be stored via acoustic encoding in our brains. Encoding is the first process of memory during which information is transformed so that it can be stored. This is a physiological process which starts uh, with attention. A memorable event causes the neurons to fire more rapidly, organizing the information into a uh, systematic array that that can then be recalled later. How we encode information determines how it will be stored, what cues will be effective when we try to retrieve it. When trying to memorize a poem or nursery rhyme, uh, the brain does does not encode each word individually by itself, isolated and alone. It creates patterns of words making the experience more intense and increasing the likelihood that the event is encoded as a memory. There's four main kinds of encoding, acoustic, visual, tactile, and semantic. If you say something out loud or, you know, read something out loud, you're using acoustic encoding. And nursery rhymes are meant to be said aloud and also to be repeated, right? They're often short and sweet. Easy to repeat when they're short and sweet. Easy to repeat when they're short and sweet. I just fucking made that. Uh, uh, Acoustic encoding is further aided by what is known as the phonological or phonological loop. Phonological loop is a process by which sounds are then sub-vocally rehearsed, right? You start saying your mind over and over. Easy to repeat. And then, you know, it makes it easier for recall. You know, ba-ba, black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. I memorized that as a kid. Uh, if it wouldn't have rhymed, wouldn't have had a simple, pleasing rhythm, uh, you know, a little bit of a lot harder to memorize because of the way our brains are wired and how they encode memories. Compare that nursery rhyme to a sloppily written short story that essentially conveys the same message. Ba-ba, black sheep, how much wool do you have for me today? Three bags full, that's great. That's how much I was hoping for. Three bags is cool because, as you know, I have to give one bag to the king. That's the cost of doing business. You get it. And I need a second bag of your wool to give to this noble lady who also taxes the shit out of us. And that sucks. But it is what it is. And then I got one for myself, so I guess that's better than none. (laughs) Actually, the original nursery rhyme ended with uh, a nun for the little boy who lives down the lane. 
So my overly wordy, much harder to memorize version would have ended with, and the third bag turns out it's not even fucking full at all. That's a lie. It's so it's empty. So I guess I'm fucked and I'm not going to eat now because I don't make enough money because the king and the duchess took all my fucking wool. Not as catchy, you know, much harder to memorize verbatim. Uh, since I used it as an example, uh, here's a little history on the Baba Black Sheep rhyme. Uh, that particular rhyme once got banned from UK school districts in the 80s and 90s because it was thought to be uh, very politically incorrect, thought to be very racist. Some parents in the UK complained that their children were being taught a song that had strong allusions to slavery. They thought black sheep was a reference to African slaves with the wool referencing them being forced to work on farms. And that is actually not true. Uh, The origins of the nursery rhyme date were for a long time thought to date back to the 18th century in Britain. At that time, Britain was in fact trading slaves to its colonies, but they were not necessarily using these slaves to work uh, farmland in the way we traditionally associate with slavery in the U.S. And it would have actually been uncommon for slaves in the U.K. to be handling wool at the time. Most literary experts who studied this rhyme believe that some early version of Baba Black Sheep actually dates back further in British history than once thought, like way further, all the way back to the 13th century and to something called the Great Custom. At that time, the wool trade was big in England, and when King Edward I returned from the Crusades, he needed extra money to pay for his military expedition, so he introduced new wool taxes, a.k.a. the Great Custom, and the master and dame in the rhyme likely represent the nobility who were taking a portion of the peasant's wool as taxes. And we look to the original ending, and none for the little boy who lives down the lane, the original intention makes more sense, right? The king and nobility were fucking the poor over, just like they've done for most of human history, And then at some point, the original lyrics were altered to make a, you know, a more upbeat tale. Everyone gets wool. Ha ha. JK about the sad ending. Yay. Uh, That nursery rhyme, like so many others, was originally a a sneaky way to, for illiterate peasants to talk shit about the king and other nobility who were taxing them unfairly. It was a way of recording the terrible deeds of a ruler in a way that didn't get their heads cut off and in a way that wouldn't soon be forgotten. This all makes uh, these old nursery rhymes so much cooler to me. Right, the coded message of the subjugated masses. Small rhyming acts of defiance in the face of tyranny. Uh, for the longest time, I just thought they were a way for grandparents to help their grandkids to read. To read. Uh, musician, BBC producer, and musical historian Jeremy Barlow, a specialist in early English popular music, further reiterates the subversive importance of many nursery rhymes, writing about how these cutesy little rhyme and sing songs not only help people memorize the messages, they also help distract from the real message, writing... The innocent tunes do not, uh, I'm sorry, the innocent tunes do draw attention away from what's going on in the rhyme. For example, the drowned cat in Ding Dong Bell, some of the shorter rhymes, particularly those with nonsense or repetitive words, attract small children even without the tunes. They like the sound and rhythm of the words. Of course, the tune enhances that attraction, so the words and the tune then become inseparable. Uh, And again, I'll share the content of that Ding Dong Bell nursery rhyme here soon. Some of these nursery rhymes, so controversial. Uh, They were controversial in the sense that they uh, often held coded content and also because of some of the imagery and language in them. It was deemed as inappropriate for children uh, in the past, just like it's deemed, you know, inappropriate by some people today. I checked out this fucked up classic. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She gave them some broth without any bread and whipped them all soundly and put them to bed. No one knows for sure what the hell this weird rhyme is about. There are a number number of historical figures that might be the old woman. And the poem is letting you know that, you know, she, A, has too many kids, B, she's crazy, and C, she's a terrible mother slash person. It could originate from some uh, forgotten custom. It could be essentially a joke about motherhood or something else entirely. A lot of speculation. Uh, Whatever it's possibly hiding or the lost meaning is on the surface, 
It's about some lady, you know, losing her mind and starving and just senselessly beating the shit out of her kids. And just like some parents have a problem reading that kind of story to their kids today, you know, it's also outraged parents during other points in history. Rhymes like this definitely outraged many Victorians in the 19th century. So much so, in fact, that a bunch of them founded the British Society for Nursery Rhyme Reform. And they took great pains to clean up the lyrics they thought went too far, which was a lot of them. According to Random House's Max Minkler, as late as 1941, the society was condemning roughly 100 of the most common nursery rhymes for harboring unsavory elements, including Humpty Dumpty and Three Blind Mice, both of which we'll discuss later. The long list of sins, Minkler notes, included referencing poverty. That's a weird thing to be upset about. Uh, fucking Victorians. Uh, scorning prayer, ridiculing the blind. It also included 21 cases of death, notably choking, decapitation, hanging, devouring, <laughs> shriveling, and squeezing, plus 12 cases of torment to animals, and one case each of consuming human flesh, body snatching, and the desire to have one's limbs severed. <laughs> I wonder what the British Society for Nursery Rhyme Reform would have thought of the Tom and Jerry cartoons I watched growing up. The ones I watched were written and produced between 1940 and 1958 by Hanna-Barbera and MGM in the U.S. And one episode literally called Heavenly Puss. Fuck yeah, bro. Hail is Uh, Not that kind of puss, actually. Uh, in this episode, after being crushed to death by a piano to start the cartoon, Tom's spirit needs to get past a security guard in heaven who decides if a dead cat can go to heaven or not. Before Tom's turn comes, the guard is distracted by a squishy, wet pouch hopping his way towards him. I remember this cartoon. As the rope unties, three little kittens pop their heads out, purr, and rush towards heaven. And then the guard shakes his head and says, what some people won't do. Yay! Someone put three kittens in a sack and threw them in the fucking river to drown. Comedy! Who the fuck wrote that cartoon? Ed Kemper? Mother, look at the comedy I made. First I killed some kittens, mother. Then I wrote a comedy about it. Uh, and another super funny comedy for kids called Year of the Mouse. Thomas fucking had it with Jerry's pranks. And at gunpoint, he makes Jerry and a mouse buddy of his climb into a bottle and he traps them inside. And, and then he booby traps the bottle in such a way that if they try to get out of it, a gun's going to blow their fucking brains off or brains out. And then Tom, super pleased himself, has a great nap. The end. There is a very similar scenario presented in the movie Saw 2, the old magnum eye hole scene. The Tom and Jerry version is comedy. The Saw version is horror. I feel like a lot of nursery rhymes uh, prep me for my uh, love of Tom and Jerry and similar cartoons, which then prep me for, you know, love of horror movies later. Uh, no hidden messages or morality tales in Tom and Jerry, though, just pure violence, which numerous parents have objected to over the years. And certain Tom and Jerry cartoons have been pulled off of this platform or that over the years for being too violent. So why were many of these nursery rhymes dark? Because dark subject matter made them popular with kids because kids, like a lot of adults, often find dark taboo shit funny. And why is that? Why do kids like me at one time, you know, uh, find, say, the cartoonish violence of a lot of nursery rhymes to be very humorous? Why do I still love it? Let's get into some uh, comedic theory. This is a little detour I loved going down in the research this week. Uh, allow me to do the one thing you're not supposed to do with humor, and that is analyze it. Get ready for a peek behind the curtain to see how some of the comedy sausage is made. Uh, numerous studies have actually shown that kids overall perceive violent cartoons to be funnier than nonviolent ones. And why? The simple answer is, well, because it's wrong. In 2010, in the journey Psychological Science, A. Peter McGraw and Caleb Warren, both then at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, proposed a theory for humor they call benign violation. And this is a pretty commonly accepted explanation of uh, most humor now. Uh, let's apply this only to dark, violent humor, since this is a suck about dark nursery rhymes, not about humor in general. This theory comes out of an earlier theory known as the theory of incongruity. Uh, that theory is that laughter is caused by the perception of something that is incongruous. 
meaning it violates our, you know, uh, expectations, our mental patterns. A simple, a simple definition for this is laughter is a function of anticipating a different outcome than what was expected. Uh, adding to this is the new benign violation theory, uh, or, you know, adding to this in the new benign violation theory is of course a violation in this more modern human humor theory, laughter results when a person simultaneously recognizes both that an ethical, social, or physical norm has been violated. What they thought was going to happen did not happen. And what happened was inappropriate. And this violation is not very offensive, reprehensible, or upsetting. It's benign. Tom and Jerry, uh, or the, or the characters of an old nursery rhyme doing something against the norm and fucked up is funny because they're not real people, right? It's fiction. It's ultimately harmless. Jack and Jill, they can fucking, they can get fucked up on the hill. It's like, you don't really care about them because they're cartoons. Jerry, the mouse with a gun to his head, pleading for his life. You know, he's not a real creature. He's uh, he's not alive. Hurting the cartoon mouse is a benign violation. Benign, you know, because it's not real. Violation because it goes against a cultural norm to threaten to kill somebody just because you want him to stop pranking you so you can get a nap. A kid might find old mother Hubbard, you know, that nursery nursery rhyme funny because those pretend kids, yeah, they don't deserve to be fed less food. You know, they don't uh, deserve to be beaten simply because their mom is exhausted and they're also not real. Hopefully that same kid would not laugh if their parent told them that their aunt had been arrested for starving and actually beating the shit out of their cousins. Because that violation would not be benign. That would be real and tragic. Okay, some people, though, they won't even laugh at uh, the Tom and Jerry nursery rhyme stuff. That violation to them is not benign. Humor, of course, is subjective. And some people truly don't seem to have much of a sense of humor. Uh, How much you like to laugh or are wired to laugh, you know, it varies a lot from meat sack to meat sack. The meat sacks who do not laugh at even cartoon violence. So are they just better people than those of us who enjoy a, a fucked up joke? Those of us who uh, think, what is big deal? I just like to wrestle. Nope, they are not. But they might be dumber. Not JK in here. Uh, get ready to feel superior, meat sacks. Uh, according to numerous studies, including a pretty recent 2017 study, people who appreciate taboo jokes and other forms of black humor, gallows humor, show higher levels of intelligence than people who do not. Showbiz, take off the dunce cap and lap up that peanut butter, bear cat. Fuck yeah. All the people who have ever uh, told me over the years that they really only like clean comedy or that, you know, the best comics were clean. Uh, dark and dirty comedy is, you know, it's cheap and basically cheating and easier to do. You silly cunts can all go suck a bag of dicks. Choke and die. Or, you know, you can just enjoy the kind of comedy you like. And I'll keep doing what I do. Hell name run. Uh, in this 2017 study, uh, researchers at the Medical University of Vienna found that the enjoyment of so-called gallows humor is linked to high levels of both verbal and nonverbal intelligence. They also found that participants who appreciated such jokes tended to be less aggressive than those with a more conventional sense of humor. Don't bottle it up. Don't keep telling yourself you can't laugh at this or that. Fucking makes you tense. Get tense enough, you're going to snap, you're going to do something crazy. Uh, These findings support psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud's 1905 theory of humor, which proposes that humor allows for a temporarily and relatively safe release of usually repressed sexual and aggressive urges in the form of wits. I knew we meat sacks were the best. I fucking knew it. Okay. Now we've covered why nursery rhymes were often dark, why darkness is funny. And it's okay to laugh at. Uh, Some of those old rhymes were dark because real historical tragedies, you know, were subversively snuck into children's literature as a way to hide messages and not get your head lopped off. You could help people remember the bad thing by teaching it, you know, to kids. And because of gallows humor, a dark tale can be appealing to kids on a comedic level. And if kids think something's funny, they're going to want to pass it around. And that has helped keep these nursery rhymes around. Outside of a laugh, small kids usually don't appreciate the the coded part of the messages. Is there any educational value 
to these nursery rhymes. Yes, a lot, actually. Uh, This is, I think, the main reason a lot of old nursery rhymes have had so much staying power. Uh, They help our brains develop. And so we keep saying them under the the basic rule of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, And who doesn't like, uh, you know, some tradition as well? A little connection to our past. Let me explain how these things help our brains. At the core of nursery rhymes is their distinctive sing-song meter, tonality and rhythm that characterizes baby talk or motherese. And this way of speaking has a proven evolutionary value. Baby talk is not just some silly bullshit. Yes, it can be super annoying to listen to, but it can also help a kid learn. Research has shown that talking to children in motherese, who's a smart little girl? You are. Yes, you are. This is very helpful when it comes to building a kid's ability to understand and create sentences of their own someday. Most of us parents, I've never known a parent not to do this actually, use changes in pitch and rhythm when we talk to small children. We emphasize important words and simple sounds. And these sounds and words are what kids usually learn to then produce first. You know, say mama, mama, say dada, dada. Those sound a lot easier for a baby's, you know, uh, untrained vocal cords to reproduce. Then if you were like, say apex predator, say an apex predator is approaching my crib. An apex predator is approaching my crib. Say there's a fire in the nursery. Oh God, there's a fire in the nursery. Come on, you stupid fucking baby. I'm trying to prepare you for the real world. You need to be able to recognize, assess danger, communicate it. God, you're fucking dumb as shit. You get it. Right? That's not going to work. Teaching children to read and rhyme early in life is beneficial to their development. There are countless studies that show the benefits of reading to your kids. And reading things with simple words they can actually repeat is going to be more beneficial than complex narratives full of top-shelf, highfalutin vocabulary words. Thanks to being an effective uh, mnemonic device, thanks thanks to enhanced memory storage via acoustic encoding in our brains, nursery rhymes are great language tools for very young kids. The simple rhythm, the rhyme of Mother Goose, nursery rhymes, helps children develop all sorts of language-based confidence so they can feel smart and shit. The rhymes boost their cognitive development, increase their vocabulary. Various studies have shown that kids who learn nursery rhymes early on become better readers shortly thereafter. Nursery rhymes get a lot of kids off the old language starting blocks and the super important race to literacy. If you can read, your chances of financial and social success increase dramatically. And the better you can read, the easier it is to achieve more overall success and frankly, happiness due to that success. Money doesn't buy happiness, but you know, a little bit helps you get to a place where you can fucking slow down and, and be a little happier. Uh, There is evidence, not surprising, that nursery rhymes can also help develop future writers. Some nursery rhymes can also be important for emotional development. Nursery rhyme characters experience many different emotions. This can help children identify their own emotions, understand the real emotions of others. Uh, Sharing nursery rhymes can provide a safe and secure bond between parent and child, a rewarding and nurturing shared experience, positive physical touch between a parent and a child or between children, for example, during, say, clapping rhymes. That's important for social and emotional, uh, emotional development. Some educators also believe that nursery rhymes help children learn problem-solving skills. One of the rhymes that comes to the mind there is Jack Spratt. Another one we'll cover later in the timeline. But for now in this rhyme, Jack and his wife, you know, they've, uh, they have a terrible problem. He doesn't want to eat fat meat. She doesn't want to eat lean meat. So what does one do? Go vegan? Kill her? Find a much cooler wife you can enjoy steak with? No, Jack doesn't do that. In the end, they work together to get what they both want and lick their plates clean. Uh, There's also evidence that, you know, some nursery rhymes help develop empathy. Research has shown that empathy is not simply inborn, at least not entirely. Some are born with more of it than others, uh, as long as you're born with at least a little of it. And most all, if not not all, excuse me, meat sacks are, you can be taught to expand your empathy. It's thought largely to be a learned behavior. 
And some simple rhymes are able to get kids to care about the characters in them and empathize with what they're going through. Beyond empathy, the simple structure of these songs also helps youngsters begin to process, communicate information, training their brains to be able to handle more complex processing, communicating later in life. Some educators even go as far as saying that nursery rhymes help prep young minds for what's known as academic writing, a type of writing that includes book reports, research papers, and more. And then those skills can be applied, you know, out in the real world uh, for various jobs. How? Well, throughout a person's life, many of us who memorize these nursery rhymes never fully forget them and their simple ideas and linking these ideas as a structure. For example, let's look at the structure of the tale about Mary and her stupid little lamb. It's just kidding. It's a nice lamb. Here are the words. Mary had a little lamb who's... Uh, I don't even act now. Why is that melody in my head? Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It followed her to school one day, which was against the rules. It made the children laugh and play to see a lamb at school. And so the teacher turned it out, but still it lingered near and waited patiently about till Mary did appear. Why does the lamb love Mary so? The eager children cry. Why Mary loves the lamb, you know, the teacher did reply. So very sweet. Nothing dark about that one. Now check out his structure. It begins with a generic question. What I have. What do I have? In this case, Mary has a, a, a lamb. Then it explains, you know, what does it look like? Back to Mary's lamb. Uh, it has a snow white fleece. After that, the formula asks, what is the best thing about it? In this case, it's a loving lamb. Loyal to the girl, follows her everywhere. Finally, the structure ends with a short story or anecdote. In the gripping story of Mary and her lamb, the damn thing follows her to school and has a, they have an interesting day and it you know, teaches us less about love. While that might not sound like much structure, it's similar to the structure of who, what, when, where, why, and how the professional journalists, researchers, police investigators, etc. use to get a full picture of a situation. As people grow from children to adults, they will have already been playing and talking with these same processes that they'll be uh, using later in school, in their professions, and as citizens, organizing language into chunks to accomplish various objectives. Okay, one last thing before the timeline. Uh, you look into old nursery rhymes, and sure enough, a lot of articles come up about them uh, being pretty racist. And of course, many of them do feature racist elements. It would be more shocking to me if they didn't. The norms of the age they were written in, uh, you know, were rife with racism. It truly was uh, the way of the world, not condoning it, but also not going to try and impose 21st century understanding, compassion, and social evolution on a 19th century world because that doesn't make any sense. I hate uh, presentism, holding historical figures by today's standards. I think it's a very virtuous, uh, signally dishonest way to look at the past. Still, even knowing and understanding all that, some of the examples of the original lyrics are uh, well, they're pretty, pretty fucking surprising and shocking. Take the original version of Old Mother Goose and the Golden Egg from the 1860s or perhaps even earlier. Mother Goose stories were being printed in some form at least as far back as 1695. It contains the lines, Jack sold his gold egg to a rogue of a Jew who cheated him out of the half of his due. Yikes! Just a bit uncomfortable there. Uh, in this version, the Jewish character goes on to steal and murder the goose, resolving at once his pockets to fill. Why does he do that? Because he's Jewish, I guess. No other details are given about him. He's greedy, not afraid to swindle you out of your money. You know, that was a, obviously a very anti-Semitic stereotype that exists, unfortunately, to this day. Obviously not a good look, not a good stereotype to push. I'm guessing Hitler was pretty familiar with this, uh, this nursery rhyme. Uh, April of 1969, the American Jewish Congress, AJC, successfully pressured the Xerox Corporation to withdraw 3,000 reprints of an 1895 edition of Mother Goose that contained this language. However, despite the AJC's victory, the same anti-Semitic language continues to circulate until 1975, uh, the 1975 Viking Press edition of Mother Goose. And that was found in libraries 
uh, at least throughout the 1980s. And for historical purposes and research, you know, it should be kept in libraries. No sense in erasing the past or pretending it never happened, but maybe shouldn't be available for quick checkout in the kids section. I'm no fan of book burning, not of literally any book, fuck censorship, but uh, big fan of supervision. Just like young kids shouldn't be checking out hardcore porn or books on how to, you know, turn household chemicals into explosives, maybe they should not be casually checking out old racist rags either. Another shockingly racist old nursery rhyme is Five Little Monkeys. Five little monkeys jumping on the bed. One fell off and bumped his head. Mama called the doctor and the doctor said, no more monkeys jumping on the bed. And it goes into four monkeys. And then three and, you know, two, one, you get it. Uh, With one left, the last line changes to put those monkeys right to bed. Originally, eek, the N-word used where the word monkey now lies. So that's a real bad look. In a Reader's Digest article on racism and nursery rhymes, author Aisa uh, Nefertari Ulen argues that subbing in the word monkeys not only fails to redress the wrongs of the original language, it's also traumatizing in a different, though related way. In the end, using the word monkeys doesn't eliminate racism from the nursery rhyme. It simply reestablishes it. That's a fair point. Unfortunately, long history of racial overtones with the word monkey. Uh, Philip Nell, an English professor at Kansas State University, author of Was the Cat in the Hat Black? The Hidden Racism of Children's Literature and the Need for Diverse Books, explains that saying children's literature and culture helped promote the lie of black animal. Uh, animal anim- oh, man, this is the word again that I read. I'm like, yeah, a- animality. Uh, then pronounce it. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, it's, a- it's animal with I-T-Y at the end. Uh, animality by presenting African-Americans as apes or monkeys, either via racist caricature or via monkey characters who behaved like they imagine African-Americans behaved. And there are certainly many other examples of nursery rhyme racism like eeny, meeny, miny, mo." You probably know how that one starts, right? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo." catch a tiger by the toe. If it hollers, screams, you know, one of the two. If it hollers, you know, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo." Well, used to have the N-word in place of, you know, tiger. So, yeah, yikes. Hopefully that was not the version grandma or grandpa was reading to you. Uh, thankfully, uh, morality has evolved quite a bit since the days of 18th and 19th century thinking, uh, aware that there is still plenty of room to improve. There will always be because we're never going to be perfect, but glad we've come a long way. Since that kind of shit was, uh, you know, widely socially acceptable to say, to read in school, all that stuff. I also know that the constant change can feel frustrating at times, even when it's good, language constantly being updated, what was once totally acceptable, suddenly inflammatory, that can be very stressful, you know, feeling like you never know what you're allowed to say, what's okay to say. Uh, change, even good change, is inherently stressful, but uh, that's okay. Stress, uh, stress, stress can create uh, very, very positive outcomes. Uh, now, I think we have a pretty good foundation for understanding nursery rhymes, their value, what they were often used for, how we don't know most of the authors, etc. Let's dig into the known history of how they came to be now, and in, uh, in the primarily English-speaking portion of the Western world, at least, and then go over a lot of examples. Have uh, a lot of fun with those examples in today's. Time Suck Timeline, right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. 
So I canceled the tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant, or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. 
Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you've had fun learning something new today and laughing a bit while doing so. A lot more laughs and learning ahead, hopefully, uh, on today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. Briefly stopping in the 14th century to start uh, today's Time Suck Timeline. First every nursery rhymes. First ever nursery rhymes. What am I saying? Uh, thought to have come from the beginning of the 14th century in England and then passed on orally. But as we previously discussed, we don't really know. Uh, fast forwarding into the 16th century, the first recorded nursery rhyme in English is thought to date back to 1580. Uh, about the same time, Sir Francis Drake returned to England after circumnavigating the world. Uh, I thought these things would have dated to back before the discovery of the new world. Uh, and, they, and again, you know, they, they did orally. But parents weren't apparently pulling out a book of nursery rhymes and reading to the kids quite yet. That 1580 nursery rhyme is the Ding Dong Bell. I mentioned earlier, and it was recorded by John Lange, who was an organist at Winchester Cathedral. That doesn't mean he wrote it. Doesn't mean he came up with it. Probably didn't. I uh, just, you know, put it to paper. The original version went like this. Jackie boy, ho boy news. The cat is in the well. Let us ring now for her nail. Ding dong, ding dong bell. In this earliest ver- version, the unfortunate cat does not make it out of the well. And the bells are its death knell. Uh like how a lot of the first recorded songs don't compare well with uh, recent hits and how a lot of the first filmed movies don't compare well with recent movies, despite what critics say. Uh, <laughs> they're fucking utterly unwatchable unless you're studying them or lying to yourself about how great they are. Uh, when Rhymes came out, a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't that good compared to now. You know, this, this Ding Dong Bell is, is fucking garbage. It desperately needed a rewrite. And by the early 20th century, it became a tale of morality to not be mean to animals. And, you know, got a little better. It went like this. Ding Dong Bell, pussy's in the well. Who put her in? Little Johnny Green. Who pulled her out? Little Tommy Stout. What a naughty boy was that to try to drown poor pussycat. Who ne'er did him any harm, but killed all the mice in the farmer's barn. Uh, very recently, pussy was replaced by kitty. Because no one under a thousand years old is talking about a cat when they're talking about pussy anymore. And I'm guessing parents and teachers started to feel uncomfortable reciting an old poem about Johnny and Tommy pulling some pussy. Uh, the old Ding Dong Bell nursery rhyme still has educational value. It's a good way to introduce a child to onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like it's meaning. In this nursery rhyme, the lyrics and the words ding dong, when pronounced, convey, you know, actual sounds. Uh, just before the, or the actual sounds of a bell. Uh, just before the turn of the 17th century, a nursery rhyme called To Market to Market was first published in the UK. Uh, first recorded in 1598 in A World of Words, or Most Copious, the exact dictionary in Italian and English, published by a man named John Florio. It appeared again in the 1611 edition of the book. Uh, the lyrics to this knee-slapping ditty, pretty straightforward. Let's eat some meat. Still popular. You know, fairly popular. This uh, lyric video posted in 2017 has 650,000 views. To market, to market. To buy a fat pig. Home again, home again, diggity, diggity, jig. To market, to market, to buy a fat hog. Home again, home again, diggity, diggity, jog. And then just, you know, to market, to market, buy a plum cake. Um, home again, market's late. Gotta buy a plum bun. Home again, the market's done. <laughs> then you gotta go to the market again. You know, you gotta gallop to get, get there quick to buy some meat to put into a pot. 
And then uh, it just talks about how much it costs. It's, it's fucking boring. Uh, that rhyme is just based on what people used to do. The traditional rural activity of going to the market or fair where, you know, agriculture or produce would be meat, bought and sold. Compared to today, how fucking boring was life back then? Uh, people writing songs about doing some grocery shopping because that's probably the most exciting part of their week. Uh, let's skip ahead now. Just a few years to the end. These, these rhymes are going to get better. Uh, to the end of the first decade of the 17th century, around 1609. We haven't hit the golden age of using grim imagery to teach kids about life and language, but one of the most famous of all the nursery rhymes was published around this time. It'll be written by a man who had the perfect name for a creepy nursery rhyme composer, Thomas Ravenscroft. His name isn't all that well-known, despite some pretty hefty contributions to the very language we're speaking. He would publish numerous collections of old social songs, folklore, religious tunes, nursery rhymes, and such. Uh, Ravenscroft, born around 1582 in Sussex, England, got his bachelor's in music degree at the University of Cambridge, possibly in 1605, from 1618 to 1622, music master at Christ's Hospital in Sussex, composed a lot of music. Ravenscroft's three secular songbooks, Pamelia, released in 1609, Deuteromelia, also released in 1609, and uh, Melissa Mata, or Melissa Meta, published in 1611. The first collections in English to include any significant material of popular or traditional origin, non-religious stuff. Uh, Pamelia was the first anthology of its kind, containing what are called catches or rounds. Catches are designed to be sung by three or more accompanied, unaccompanied male voices. Very popular in the 17th and 18th centuries in England, back when people loved music of a kind that if I had to listen to enough of, <laughs> I might drown myself in a river and hope that if there was an afterlife, none of the uh, assholes up there are still singing catches. Catches are indefinitely repeatable pieces in which all voices begin the same melody on the same pitch but enter at different time intervals. The Christmas Carol type stuff. Uh, if we were to look at these songbooks like Ravenscroft's albums, the biggest hit came from his second album, uh, Deuteromelia, also known as the second part of music's melody. And the immortal tune, not the title track, but an upbeat ditty you've probably heard of called Three Blind Mice. Ravenscroft had a hit. Makes sense that he did. He was among the first to intentionally write to please a middle-class layperson and not just the educated elite. He wasn't playing to the critics. He was playing to the people. The style of writing to regular folks would stick around. Yeah, it's pretty popular still today. Uh, really helped, with change, helped change the world, despite complaints from the powdered wig crowd. Uh, let's talk about this hit. Still very popular. Numerous versions on YouTube. One released in 2016 on the channel Little Baby Bum uh, has almost 26 million views. A bunch of other videos have views in the millions. Here's one with original lyrics. Uh, not as popular because that video is this video is not animated. And, uh, you know, they didn't cute it up. Uh, all the recently popular versions I found have... Uh, Subbed out the line about them getting their getting their tails cut off. So here we go. Hmm? Just a classic version. Three blind mice. Three, three blind, blind mice. mice. See how they run. See how they run. They all run after the farmer's wife who cut off their tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a sight in your life as three blind mice? weird how uh, familiar all these are. Heard them so many times as a kid, I guess. A lot of modern complaints about this. Why are their tails getting cut off? Why are kids singing about animal cruelty? Why are they making fun of blind mice? What the hell is this rhyme about? Well, you're not going to want to hear this, but this this particular rhyme is about your mom. Mm-hmm. It's about your stupid mom. She's a monster who loves to mutilate small creatures with a carving knife. Your mom makes me sick. No, but seriously, what's it about? According to some folklorists, three blind mice is about Mary Tudor, a.k.a. Mary the first, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, who reigned as Queen Regent of England in Ireland from July of 1553 until her death in November of 1558. Let's get to know her a bit so we can understand what this nursery rhyme is likely about. 
and uh, at least one other further down in the timeline. Mary was the star of a few popular rhymes. Almost added, uh, there was just something about Mary, but but did not. For the record, admitting I thought about it, not the same as doing it. Uh, Bloody Mary was the name given to Mary Tudor by her Protestant adversaries in honor of her forceful and pretty bloody efforts to reverse the English Reformation in favor of her preferred Catholicism. She ruled as part of the powerful Tudor dynasty in England. The Tudor royal dynasty began with King Henry VII uh, ascending to the throne of England, Wales, and Ireland in 1485, ended with the childless death of Elizabeth I in 1603. They're historically famous for taking the country from a run-of-the-mill medieval kingdom to becoming a preeminent world power that would then quickly become one of the biggest empires the world's ever known. Uh, before Mary, the Tudor dynasty was headed by Mary's famous daddy, King Henry VIII, himself famous for being cruel and capricious. Mary Tudor was born February 18th, 1516 at the Palace of Placentia in Greenwich, England. She was the only child of King Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who survived through childhood. She was baptized as Catholic shortly after birth, and she took that shit seriously. Uh, tutored by her mom and scholars, she excelled in music and language. In 1525, when she was nine, her father named her Princess of Wales. The title Lady Di would later hold, uh, and he sent her to live on the Welsh border. Frustrated by the lack of a male heir, in 1533, Henry declared his marriage to Mary's mom, Catherine Null. Null and void, claiming that because he married his deceased brother's wife, it was kind of like incest. And then the Pope was like, wait a minute, who's this motherfucker think he is? Only I can nullify royal marriages. This is not good for business. I mean, this is not right in the eyes of God and stuff. I will not allow it. The move humiliated Catherine and her daughter, Mary, who watched her mother's horrible treatment with shock and contempt as her mom is banished from the royal court, essentially sent out into exile and kept from seeing her daughter. Henry would offer both mother and daughter, daughter, mother and daughter permission to see one another if they would acknowledge Anne Boleyn as the new queen, but both refused. Uh, when the Pope balked at Henry's self-granted divorce, he was like, well, then fuck your whole church. And he broke off relations with the Catholic Church and a whole bunch of priests got real nervous. I imagine there was a lot of, oh God, are we getting burned at the stake now? I mean, we traditionally have done the burning, but do we, do we, do we get burned now? I think we get burned now. Tell me we don't get burned now. Uh, not sure Henry would burn any of them, actually. But he would hang at least 430 of them during his reign. Uh, Henry established the Church of England, a major part of the Christ Reformation in Europe, and he married one of Catherine's maids of honor, Anne Boleyn. Yikes. Just a slight betrayal there. I imagine Anne and Catherine were not like the best of friends after that. Uh, Mary and Henry would not work out for, Han for Anne, much better than it worked out for Catherine, though. Anne Boleyn gave birth to Elizabeth, Mary's half-sister. Uh, she feared Mary would pose a challenge to the succession to the throne and successfully uh, pressed for an act of parliament to declare Mary illegitimate. This placed the princess outside the succession to the throne, forced her to be the lady-in-waiting to her half-sister Elizabeth. Uh, Henry then had the scheming Boleyn beheaded in 1536 for treason, married his third wife, Jane Seymour, who was one of Anne's maids of honor. And actually had one of Catherine's maids, uh, was one of Catherine's maids of honors as well. Uh, slimy old Hank really loved fucking his wife's maid of honors. And this maid finally gives him a son, Edward. And then she will die less than two weeks later of complications from childbirth. After King Hank, the royal woman Hayton Prick, marries a few more women and has another head lopped off. He dies in 1547. Mary's half-brother Edward VI becomes king. Six years later, in 1553, he dies at the age of 15. After Ed's death, Mary's now 37. She wants the throne. She's seen a lot of shit in her 37 years. Her mom has been banished and died uh, just weeks before her first stepmom is beheaded for treason. Her second stepmom dies in childbirth. Her third stepmom quickly has her marriage annulled because eh, Hank's not so excited about uh, fucking her anymore. Uh, her fourth stepmom, also beheaded, 
fifth stepmom dies in childbirth. Uh, before dying, uh, uh, fifth stepmom, sixth wife of Henry VIII, Catherine Parr, insisted that the king make amends with his daughters, but he'd only do so if Mary acknowledged him uh, to him as head of the Church of England and admitted the illegality of his marriage to her mother, Catherine. Under duress, she agrees, although Mary does re-enter the royal court. Her religious beliefs make her an outcast, a catalyst for conflict. She's, you know, Catholic there with the Church of England. All this hardens her into a pretty ruthless soon-to-be ruler. Mary now challenges and successfully deposes the new queen, Lady Jane Grey, first cousin once removed of Mary's half-brother, former King Ed VI. Need a fucking flowchart to keep track of all this shit. Granddaughter of Henry's younger sister. Uh, Mary took the throne as the first queen regent of England now, first female ruler. She reinstates her parents' marriage. Fuck Anne Boleyn. Also quickly has 17-year-old Lady Grey's head cut off, like father, like daughter. At first, she acknowledges the religious dualism of her country, but then decides, you know what? Fuck these new Protestants, converts England back to Catholicism. Uh, and then she knows she needs to get married to make her, you know, authority stick, being childless. She's worried that if she doesn't marry and doesn't provide an heir, her throne will pass to her Protestant half-sister Elizabeth. There'll be a lot of people trying to assassinate her. She needs a Catholic heir to avoid the reversal of her reform. So um, she quickly arranges marriage to Philip II of Spain. The public response to Mary's marriage, extremely unpopular. She presses on though, repealing many of Henry VIII's Religious edicts replaces them with her own, which include a strict uh, heresy law. The enforcement of this law will result in the burning of perhaps, you know, more than 300 Protestants as heretics. Some historians have it at 287 burned. So while a bunch of priests are not burned, a bunch of pastors are burned. What a terrible way to go. Uh, Mary's religious persecutions make her extremely unpopular uh, with Protestants. And that's what earns her the posthumous or posthumous nickname of Bloody Mary. So that's how we get to Bloody Mary. Uh, not really a fair title compared to her dad, though, I got to say. The number of executions and war deaths combined during the reign of Henry VIII has been estimated to be upwards of 72,000. Might not be that high. That would be 2.8% uh, of the population of England at that time. But he likely did execute way more fucking people than 300. He's a bloodthirsty dude. Loved to kill people. Loved to execute. A statute was passed in England in 1531 by Henry VIII that made willful murder by means of poison high treason punishable by boiling to death. He would have people boiled alive publicly. Richard Roos, cook of John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester, poisoned the porridge supposedly of Rochester and his guests in February of 1531. I say supposedly because I always question medieval justice. And here's what a witness wrote about his demise. He roared mighty loud. Like as he's getting fucking boiled. Of course he did. He's screaming. And women who were big with child did feel sick at the sight of what they saw and were carried away half dead. Yeah, people fucking passing out because it's so horrific to watch this guy being boiled alive. Uh, Roots would have been strung up in a series of pulleys and ropes, hung precariously over a drum of boiling liquid, maybe water, maybe tar, could be oil, wine, whatever, whatever thy king prefers. The executioner would then kind of dip him, would lower the condemned down to the liquid, then raise him back up, right? Just fucking burn him for a little while, then pull him back up, let him scream for a while, then dip him again, just back and forth like this. Highly painful demise. In addition to being boiled, people were beheaded, hanged, burned alive, drawn and quartered even during Henry VIII's uh, watch. That was another especially rough way to go. Here's a description of being drawn and quartered. First, the prisoner is dragged behind a cart from their jail or prison to where their execution was to take place. Once there, the prisoner is hanged without a drop to ensure that the neck is not broken and cut down while still conscious. <laughs> then, then it gets a lot worse. Already bad, gets a lot worse. The penis and testicles are cut off and the stomach is slit open. Fuck. The intestines and heart are removed and burned before them. Jesus Christ. The other organs are torn out. Finally, the head is cut off, body divided into four quarters. 
the head and quarters parboiled to prevent them rotting too quickly, then displayed upon the city gates as a grim warning to all. They hanged you a little bit just for funsies. Let you wiggle around a little bit, just choke up, tear up for a bit, you know, get your neck all scraped raw. And then, you know, the British are like, off with his dick, off with his nuts. That's what the king's saying, uh, you know, eating a big old fucking turkey leg, off with his dick. And then, uh, you know, after that, you get your stomach cut open. And if you haven't bled to death, you know, uh, already, you finally die when they tear your fucking heart out and burn it in front of you. It was a bloody time. Henry VIII was bloody. Queen Mary was bloody. So much blood. Uh, Whether her nickname is earned or, you know, uh, just uh, hyperbole, uh, Bloody Mary turns up as the secret star of a few of the darker nursery rhymes and definitely not very popular with uh, the Protestant crowd. Uh, Maybe people villainized her because she was a woman. Had she been a dude, she would have been just another ruthless tyrant. Just another guy boiling people left and right like, you know, a lot of guys before Quite possible. Now, let me tie this all back in with three blind mice. The actual stars of three blind mice. Uh, the three mice of the rhymes are believed by many historians and folklorists to be Bloody Mary's enemies, ultimately her victims. They're said to refer to a group of Protestant bishops, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Radley, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. These uh, three unsuccessfully conspired to overthrow Bloody Mary in favor of her sister, Elizabeth I. And then when Mary became queen, she was like, well, fuck those guys. And she punished them, just like her dad punished anyone coming after his crown, real or imagined before. Some interpretations uh, refer to the blindness in the rhyme to be the trio's religious beliefs, right? These Protestants were blind to the, the true nature of the obviously Catholic God. And there are other rumors that uh, Mary actually had them blinded just to torture them before they were killed. That part, probably not true. There's not a lot of records like blindings that way. Uh, No, Uh, they probably would have just been branded as heretics and then, you know, burned at the stake. That's all. (laughs) They're not going to gouge their eyes out. Come on, that's too much. That's too far. I crossed the line. They're just going to be burned to death and they're going to be super happy to still have their eyes. They're going to be up on the, you know, stake just being like, little hot for my liking, but I'm so very glad to see all of you. Thank you, merciful Mary, for allowing me to retain my peepers. A bit irritated with the smoke at the moment, but soon that shall be a problem no more. For they shall have been burned away into but a salt shake's worth of ash. Oh, what a wonderful way to go. Uh, Were they possibly tortured, maybe even dismembered in some other way before being burned? That is possible. Uh, Maybe cutting off uh, of the tails in the rhyme is a nod to, uh, you know, some protruding appendage of theirs being whacked off. Whacked off in a bad way. Now I kind of wish it was done the first way. I thought, oh, that's pretty funny to think about. You know, sometimes guys were just jerked off before their executions. We're going to burn you alive, gentlemen. But first, nothing wrong with a little handy. to Get you good and relaxed for the big show. Uh, more on Bloody Mary later. Uh, back to the timeline. 17th century loaded with new rhymes for the littlest of kids. 1639 marked the first appearance of that 17th century banger, Jack Spratt, right? In a collection of Proverbs. And songs published by John Clark. We got another morning rock block for you here. Strap on those mosh pit Doc Martens. Trying to kill anyone after this dose of pure audio adrenaline. It's so big. Yeah, that's just the tip. DJ Iceberg. Iceberg. Here is Jack Spratt. Jack Spratt could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. And so between them both, you see, they licked the platter clean. Oh, man. Just another banger. Uh, The original rhyme ended with Jack ate all the lean. Joan ate all the fat. The bone, they picked it clean. They gave it to the cat. 
Later on, around 1765, is collected in a nursery songs book, The Mother's Goose Melody. What's it talking about? The term Jack Spratt used to, refer to, uh, used to refer to short people in the 16th century, but that might not be what it was about, just a character detail. Uh, historically, there are many theories about the character of Jack Spratt, but not much evidence to support any of them definitively. Jack Spratt could, uh, could have been a reference to King Charles I, a story about uh, the conflict between the king and parliament at the time. The lean and fat would represent the varying heft of a proposed tax of Charles I. A fun kids rhyme about taxes. Kids love taxes. Uh, the king intended a war against Spain and the uh, parliament wouldn't support its costs. So he decided to dissolve parliament. He would dissolve it three times during his reign. And he and his wife, Queen Henrietta uh, Maria, illegally gathered a war tax from the citizens. A move that made Charles very unpopular. His reign would end in Parliament forming an army loyal to them and not to the king, and then in his uh, imprisonment and beheading. A lot of people used to get their heads lopped off, at least compared to now. Uh, Jack Spratt could also be correlated with the Robin Hood legend and the story of King John and his brother Richard I, both characters portrayed in the famous legend. It was basically the good king, Richard the Lionheart, versus the bad king, King John the Dick. Jack Spratt, Jack Spratt uh, thought to be the dickhead King John, or maybe Jack Spratt, none of those dudes. And the rhyme, you know, is just a... Uh, a rhyme, a fun little rhyme that may double as a fable with a moral lesson. Uh, between the 16th and 17th centuries, the rhyme was especially popular in England. The moral uh, thought by some to be better to go supperless than to rise in debt. And that's why Jack didn't eat any fat. He couldn't afford it. So, you know, he wasn't gonna put it on credit. He was just gonna pick the bone clean. He was a frugal son of a bitch. Uh, moving along the timeline of this steadily evolving art form of children's literature, Another of the earliest nursery rhymes that remains popular is thought to be first published in 1698, Patty Cake, Patty Cake, Baker's Man. Another banger! Uh, this nursery rhyme, still stupid popular. So many videos on YouTube and so many of them have so many views. Three of them have over 250 million views each. It's absurd. So uh, it's, it's a big hit. Um, also, uh, a lot of interesting variations on this one now. Okay. Pat it and prick it and mark it with B. Mm -hmm. Put it in the oven for baby and me. Okay, it's got its own rhythm. Uh, check out check out this other one. <laughs> There's so many interesting rhythms in some of these old rhymes. Uh huh. signed off on these not the rhythm i remember but whatever i guess uh i used to play uh this one with my grandma betty when i was a wee lad and i remember playing it with kyler monroe when they were wee lads as well uh the patty cake game learned by many children before they're old enough to talk the earliest recorded 1698 version shows up in a play the campaigners written by thomas de urfre de urfe there we go in which a nurse sings it to the kids she's taking care of and pat a cake baker's man so i will master as i can and prick it 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 actually written that many times, and throw it into the oven. Uh, it appears again much closer to its current form in Mother Goose's Melody in 1765. Who knows what it first caught on as in children's rhyme. Uh, what does it mean? We couldn't find anything dark on this one, but an interesting tidbit we did find was that centuries ago, very few people had their own ovens. They didn't have ovens in their homes. It was kind of like a community oven. They would, they would mark their uncooked pastries with a symbol or a letter uh, before taking it to be baked at the communal oven. 
And that way, you know, it was going to be there when you, when you came back to get it. So that line of pat it and prick it and mark it with a B, put it in the oven for baby and me, is referring to, don't anyone steal my fucking cake, bro. That's my baby's cake, bro. Uh, in 1730, the not as popular riddle rhyme, as I was going to St. Ives, was published for the first time in England. It's about a man with between seven and nine wives, plus there's a bunch of cats and kittens and sacks and shit. It's a hot mess. This guy sounds like he loves drama. Uh, it's also a mathematical riddle. Yeah, some of these uh, old nursery rhymes would uh, double as riddles. And this one was actually featured in Die Hard with a Vengeance from 1995, uh, as heard by Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson here. There's a significant amount of explosive in the trash receptacle next to you. Come Try on. To run and it goes up now. Nobody's going to run, but I got a hundred people out here. That's the point. Now, do I have your attention? Yes. As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Every wife had seven sacks. Every sack has seven cats. Every cat has seven kittens. Kittens, cats, sacks, and wives. How many were going to St. Ives? My phone number is 555. No, 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 wait. I didn't get all that. Say it again. (laughs) Not a chance. My phone number is 555. And the answer. Mm -hmm. Call me in 30 seconds or die. What's the answer? What's the? Can anybody solve the riddle before right, they can? Seven the, guys with seven wives. Shut up, McLean. I'm good at this. Seven guys with seven wives. Shut the with fuck seven. up, McLean. He said seven wives with seven sacks. Seven, seven times wives? seven is forty-nine. Now tell me the rest. Oh, your sack with seven. What you listening? Seven. Yeah, I was listening to hear every fucking. Come on, guys. Besides having a bad fucking hangover for one all thing. All right, all right, all right. Seven wives times seven forty-nine with seven cats. Seven times forty-nine is three forty-three, right? What are you asking me or telling me? I'm telling you, three forty-three mm-hmm. times okay. seven is. Come on, come on. 2,401. What you got, right? Yeah, that's what I got. Is that it? 2,401? Nope. It's not, guys. Because I've seen this scene before. It's that's not no, it. wait, wait. It's a trick. It's a trick. What do you mean? I forgot about the man. What man? Fuck the man. We got 10 seconds. He said, how many were going to St. Ives, right? The mm-hmm. riddle begins as I was going to St. Ives. I met a man with seven wives. The guy and his wives aren't going anywhere. What are they doing? Mm-hmm. Sitting in the fucking road, waiting on the moon. How the hell should I know? Who was going to St. Ives then? Mm-hmm. The guy. Just, just the guy. guy. Just one guy. The answer is one. The answer is one. The answer is one to that riddle. And if I had a thousand years to work on that riddle, I would have never solved it. I am probably the world's worst riddle solver. Uh, everyone would have died. The bomb would have gone off if it would have been me. Um, yeah, the guy probably didn't actually have a lot of wives also, by the way. Polygamy would have been pretty unusual for a 17th century Cornish village. More likely that the word wife was used by, uh, uh, at that time and place to mean woman. Uh, it would take well over a century after Ravencroft's Three Blind Mice was published before the first collection of true English nursery rhymes would be widely printed. 1744. This first major nursery rhyme installment would help usher in the golden age of darkest fuck children's literature. The initial book was called Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook. Can you hand me that pretty songbook? Uh, it contains some of the most popular and also uh, more twisted themed nursery rhymes of them all. No one is 100% sure if Pretty Songbook is the actual first ever collection or if it's simply the oldest surviving collection because it was so widely printed. Uh, Both volumes one and two were advertised for sale in early 1744. Uh, Sadly, zero copies of volume one are known to survive today and only two copies of the second volume, uh, you know, the first printing of the second volume are on record to have survived. Someone finds that first volume in an attic or old family library or something, ah, it's going to fetch you. It's going to fetch you a pretty penny. Uh, Pretty Songbook Volume 2 included 39 rhymes, which are still familiar today, such as Baba Black Sleep, Black Sheep, Hickory Dickory Dock, Girls and Boys Come Out to Play. Plenty of other famous ones we'll discuss, plus two of my favorite titles, Who Killed Cock Robin? And Ride a Cock Horse, The Banbury Cross, I Shit You Not. The actual lyrics of Cock Robin, sadly, are long and fucking boring. I had high hopes. 
but there's a reason it's not very popular now. It kind of sucks. Uh, what even is a cock robin? If I had to guess, I would say it's a chimera of some sort, a hybrid, part bird, part uh, human dick. I mean, right? It's logical. Probably a robin, probably a little bird with a human dick for a head. Uh, ride a cock horse to Banbury Cross. This is another banger. Uh, you should work this uh, into your songs for little kids' repertoire stat. Ride a cock horse to Banbury Cross to see a fine lady upon a white horse. Mm-hmm. Catchy. With rings on her fingers and bells on her toes, she shall have music wherever she goes. And then it just, you know, talks a lot more about this. Ride uh, a cock horse. <laughs> about this cock horse. Hop on that trusty cock steed. You gotta ride that cock horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ride that cock horse. Go see a fine lady upon a white horse. Then ask her why she gets to ride a white horse and why you have a cock horse. Comments under that last video I just played are disabled. Of course they are. <laughs> Too many people out there like teenage me. Probably throwing a lot of cock comments under a kid's video. Uh, what the hell is that one about? Obviously, it's about kids getting fucked by horses, which was super popular in and around Banbury at that time. Banbury was known as the place where kids got fucked by horses. No, I don't think so. I hope not. No one has any idea. A, a cock horse was just a high-spirited horse. It just uh, it can be a horse that's not a gelding, a horse that uh, hasn't had its nuts whacked off. It's still got that full cock. Uh, another now largely forgotten rhyme from 1744's Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook is, uh, is that classic piss-a-bed. <laughs> Seriously, it's a short one, and it goes like this. Piss-a-bed, piss-a-bed, barley butt. Your bum is so heavy, you can't get up. That's it. Seems to be just about bedwetters. Glad none of my friends knew that one back when I was a little mattress soaker. Uh, kids, I'm sure, love this shit. A lot of the rhymes, you know, silly and fun. When it was first printed, uh, there was nothing else like it. Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook was carefully designed to delight and appeal to children. It was very small, about three inches by two inches. You know, would fit perfectly in a child's hand. All the rhymes illustrated, the pages printed in red and black ink. Cute little book. So who wrote it? Uh, since this was the first time, again, that we know of that anything like this had been collected, written down, and printed, uh, there could have been many authors spanning many, many years. The supposed author's name of at least some of the lyrics appears on the final page, uh, the pen name Nurse Lovechild. And no one knows who Nurse Lovechild was or even if that was a real person. Uh, the bookseller who appears on the title page, Mary Cooper, uh, may have been the real author, at least to some of them. Whoever wrote them, uh, some do seem to have some dark origins like oranges and lemons. Oranges and lemons, say the bells of St. Clemens. You owe me five farthings, say the bells of St. Martin's. When will you pay me, say the bells of Old Bailey. When I grow rich, say the bells of Shoreditch. When will that be, say the bells of Stepney. I do not know, say the great bell of Bow. Here comes a candle to light you to bed, and here comes a chopper to chop off your head. Chip, chop, chip, chop, the last one is dead. Again, so many beheadings. What does this mean? According to some hardcore nursery rhyme nerds, the bells of the first verse belong to famous churches in London, the very same churches that a condemned man would walk past on his way to the executioner's block. St. Clemens, the first church thought to be based near the docks where cargo would be delivered from the Mediterranean, including oranges and lemons. Also the dock where condemned men walked their last steps towards their deaths. Right, imagine walking to your death, bells ringing, then some kids are just singing. Here comes the chopper, chip chop, chip chop. What fun final moments. Ha, look at the bad sad man, mommy. Chip chop, chip chop. Here comes the chopper to chop off your head. <laughs> so fucking easy to get your head chopped off back then. Uh, a lot of people did get their heads chopped off. Between the late 17th, early 19th century, Britain's bloody code made more than 200 crimes uh, punishable by death. Many of them trivial. 
Between 1770 and 1830, an estimated 35,000 death sentences handed down in England and Wales, of which 7,000 executions were actually carried out at least, 7,000. You can be sent to death uh, for all kinds of stuff. You can be sent to death for stealing five shillings worth of goods, petty shoplifting, basically, uh, or for stealing literally anything from a shipwreck. Don't take anything from a shipwreck. Or uh, this is my favorite, for cutting down a young tree, for quote, cutting down a young tree. Literally could be like, you know, hanged or have your head chopped off <laughs> for cutting down a young tree. Love that the age of the tree is kind of specified, but still vague, right? Like how confusing. Please, sir, don't, don't chop off my head. I have a family. I have five children. You should have thought about those children when you cut down that young tree, Mr. Withers. But that's just it, sir. I didn't think the tree was young. It's an older tree, sir. I used to climb it myself as a lad. And that is why I was comfortable cutting it down. It's a good 50 years old if it's a day, sir. And you think 50 years is old, Mr. Withers? I do, sir. My wife is 51, Mr. Withers. Would you say I'm married to an old woman? No, sir. Uh, women and trees are different, sir. But uh, she's a, but a girl, but like dogs. Trees age a bit different, sir. Did you compare my wife to a dog, Mr. Withers? I think you did. Chop off his head. Uh, it's a fucking crazy time to be alive. Uh, another of the pretty songbooks tunes for little kids with some darkness in it is one that has remained pretty popular over the years. Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary. Like so many other nursery rhymes, it has an original version, you know, a, a modern version. Here's the version uh, most of us know. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. The original version, slightly different. It was called Mistress Mary, quite contrary. Mistress Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells. And so my garden grows. Uh, this one sounds to me like it's about a little girl and her fucking garden that, you know, I don't care about. Uh, but it has a number of Anglophile history nerds saying it's again about Bloody Mary and her deadly campaign of religious persecution. Some historical speculation here for sure, but here's what some think. They, the, the garden and the lyrics, they think refers to Bloody Mary's growing cemeteries filled with the bodies of Protestant dead that she's executed. And silver bells and cockle shells, colloquialisms for instruments of torture. Silver bells were thumb screws, which would crush the thumb between two hard surfaces by the tightening of said screw. Ouch. Cockle shells, believed to be instruments of torture, attached to a man's genitals to crush those. Ho <laughs> ho! More ouch. And the maids, the name of a crude device to behead people called the maiden, a form of guillotine. Makes me think of last week's suck. Marcel Petio's head with a smile on his face after being lopped off his body. Uh, one of the most famous of these kids' songs that was published in Pretty Songbook. Uh, one with all kinds of speculation about a dark origin is London Bridge is Falling Down. Uh, this one's been super popular for centuries. Another banger uh, between various YouTube videos, hundreds and hundreds of millions of views. And I always thought it was London Bridges, plural, falling down. It's London Bridge is falling down. Uh, and again, there are some, some interesting variations out there. Ooh. <laughs> I remember Grandma read me this version. At least she didn't perform it this way. That's a good one to play for the kids if you really want to try and up their nightmare game. Uh, or if you really like some bagpipes, you want something a little more upbeat, you can play this. I like this one. By Fram, F R A M. Clay, 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 
So uh, if you want to hear it in another language, there's a bunch of options out there. Some of these are uh, a, a lot of fun. <laughs> this has a catchy ass rhythm. Fuck yeah, bro. Uh, the metal band Korn has a song called Shoots and Ladders that's a medley of this and so many other nursery rhymes. Too long to play here. And not that great, actually. Not one of their best songs. And don't want to get flagged for a copyright violation. Uh, most uh, don't bust into the second verse, which is set a man to watch all night, watch all night, watch all night. Set a man to watch all night, my fair lady. Uh, I knew this one as a kid, like so many others. Pretty sure I might have done a little ring around the rosy type dance to it in the yard. There are actually uh, several more additional lines to the rhyme. They're pretty boring. Uh, they seem to be pretty harmless. Just a you know, long rhyme about an unstable bridge. But is that what it's really about? There are three theories. One is that it just is about an old bridge, literally falling down from, you know, years of use, too many people, structures on it for too long. Yeah, and there was a ton of fires as well. Another is that uh, it's about a Viking invasion in the 11th century, uh, tearing the bridge down. And the third is dark as fuck. The third revolves around an ancient game of human centipede. Sacrifice is what I meant, not centipede. Human sacrifice is what I didn't mean to say, but should have meant to say. But now you're thinking about human centipede. Before looking into these three theories, let's learn some uh, history about London bridges. There has been several. And I find this very interesting. There has been a bridge across the River Thames in London for nearly 2,000 years. Uh, the first London bridge was built by the Romans back in 43 CE. They built a temporary pontoon bridge, planks laid across a row of anchored boats. That's pretty clever. Uh, the next record of a bridge comes from 984 CE, jumping several centuries ahead, uh, many centuries, when a report was recorded of a widow who... Uh, uh, after the woman was accused of being a witch because someone maybe saw her push some pins into a drawn image of some dude, she was taken to London Bridge and uh, drowned. She's tossed off and drowned. Sounds about right for back then. Doing something weird to a picture, are ye? We should probably kill you in case you be some kind of witch. Uh, that bridge was built out of wood. A couple decades later, in 1014, the Danes held London. And then some Saxons under King Ethelred, the Unready, were joined by a band of Vikings from Norway led by their king, Olaf, maybe better name than the Unready, to take it from them. They sailed up the River Thames to attack the bridge and divide the Danes. They rode up under the bridge, tied cables around the pile supporting it, rode off at full speed and pulled that motherfucker down. Those are some strong-ass rowers. Uh, the bridge they pulled down was, was big. Cottages stood on it with uh, thatched roofs. And the London Bridge once again had to be rebuilt. Uh, 1176, uh, the first stone London Bridge begins to be built under the direction of Peter of Colchurch, Priest, chaplain, engineer, uh, man, renaissance man. Uh, it was common in these days for men of the cloth to design buildings. Monasteries were the best uh, and often only schools. So a lot of the most educated were priests. Uh, completed in 1209, this new London bridge took 33 years to build. And then it would last for more than 600 years. So nice work, Peter Peter Bridge Builder. Uh, what an amazing old bridge this was. You can find illustrations online. It is incredible. Had a road upon it, 20 feet wide, about 300 yards long, supported by 20 arches with a curved to a Gothic-style point. There was a wooden drawbridge on the bridge uh, to let ships in and keep invaders out for most of its history. Nice! Fuck you, Vikings! Fuck you, French! You can take your Burger King bullshit back to Paris. You get it. Uh, the flow of the water underneath it was used to turn water wheels below the arches, first for grinding grain and starting in 1580 to pump water into the city. So you could drink some of that super clean, purified Thames water. Mm-mm-mm. Cool and refreshing going down, hot and angry coming out. After its completion, people and merchants were allowed to begin building houses and shops on the well-built stone bridge. 
Soon it was completely covered with buildings. It would be at its height, populated with around 200 wooden shops and businesses. It was like an early shopping mall, but one with, you know, people pissing and shit on the floor. Uh, uh, but pretty cool. Not, not the pissing and shit on the floor part. Cool uh, that, you know, the, they had all these shops and stuff on this massive old bridge. Reminds me of some bridges in uh, Italy. Well, uh, yeah, some people lived on the bridge as well. Then in 1212, just a few years after it was completed, disaster strikes. A crowd of people are trapped on the London Bridge between two fires. Although definitive totals can't be known, some estimate that 3,000 of the 50,000 London residents burned to death uh, during this fire, but the bridge would have remained. A heavy percentage of people either getting their head lopped off or burning to death in this suck. Yay, history. Speaking of death, uh, there was a stone gatehouse on the bridge and on its roof stood poles where traders' heads were placed. So that's fun. This practice started in 1304. Oliver Cromwell's head will be placed on one of the poles 350 years later. His quote-unquote execution is so fucking weird. Not going to get too far into Cromwell's life story. Not really at all. Too complicated to explain quickly. But his execution, this is worth it. This deviation is worth it. This is not the first time something like this has come up in one of our stories, but it's been a while. Uh, It took place well after he died. Dude died of natural causes after living to the age of 59, probably related to malaria. He was buried with honor. He was a national hero. Uh, in 2002, in a BBC poll, he was still selected as one of the 10 greatest Britons of all time. Well, some political shit changed shortly after his death, centered around some Game of Thrones royal vengeance stuff, and it leads to Oliver's body being exhumed. They fucking dig him up over two years after he dies, along with the bodies of two other dead guys. Uh, they're all dug up. They're posthumously executed. Cromwell, <laughs> Cromwell's rotten body, exhumed from Westminster Abbey in the morning, publicly dragged through the streets for a while in London taken to Tyburn Gallows. You know, let's get him. <laughs> Next, his corpse is strung up in chains. His long dead corpse until four o'clock that afternoon. Then it's struck down and then decapitated. Then his head is impaled on a 20-foot pole and displayed in front of Westminster Hall. That'll teach him. And then later they take his head and display it on the bridge for a long time because why not? So some super macabre uh, pomp and circumstance here. Holy shit. Just dragging his clothes skeleton around. Just trying to change the king now, Oliver. Not so tough now, are ye? And other weird idiots go, off with his head. Off with his head. And the new king, let's see how tough you are with no head, Oliver. Any final words? Answer me. Maybe some uh, some squire or some shit's like, he's long dead, sir. Uh, yes, right. Well, I hope your head lopping still stings. Off with his dead head then. How fucking gross for everyone walking around who had to smell and look at his rotting head. Barbarians. <laughs> humans are barbarians. The shopkeepers nearby, you know, they were punished more severely than Oliver was. Some poor bastard working on his fucking bacon, having to stare at that head all the time. Not sure I did to deserve this. Would rather not have to look out my shop window and see Oliver's rotting skull staring back at me while I'm trying to sell some, some bacon, I reckon. Also, how especially fucked up for his family. Look, Ma, Grandpa, I think he's winking at me. No, dear, Papa's one eye has just completely rotted out. Uh, enough about Cromwell. It's so weird. Of course these nursery rhymes are dark. Think about what's going on when they're being written. Uh, 1577, none such house is built atop London Bridge to replace the drawbridge. Stretching across the bridge with a tunnel running through it at street level. Very cool uh, little structure here. Four stories, four stories tall. Not a single nail used in its construction. Earliest known example of a prefabricated building. Originally constructed in the Netherlands, then taken apart, shipped to London, and rebuilt. Fire strikes again. Uh, uh, in 1633. The fire starts when a maidservant leaves a pail of ashes under some wooden stairs. 43 houses are destroyed on the bridge. Many of the shops burned and damaged. 
Uh, some of these buildings not repaired or replaced for decades, which would actually then make it a that little section of burnt out bridge, a, a fire break for a worse fire coming up in 1666. This massive fire estimated to have destroyed the homes of 70,000 of the city's then 80,000 inhabitants. Burns almost everything. Started near the bridge in a baker shop on Pudding Lane. Burned more structures atop the bridge. Only didn't spread south of the river because that major blaze in you know 1633 had already destroyed a section of the bridge. Around this time, the bridge is starting to wear down slowly. Pieces of it begin to randomly fall into the River Thames. Slightly alarming if you're working on it, living on it. Soon the merchants began moving out. They're like, fuck this fire bridge. You know, it's getting too dilapidated. By 1657, all the houses are uh, pulled down before it finally collapses. Uh, The bridge is widened, partially rebuilt with a wide center arch. The bridge stays like this for over a century more until 1831 when another London bridge is opened. The new bridge built 100 feet west of the old bridge. Beginning in 1831, the old medieval London Bridge is dismantled. Many of its stones end up in the river, some used for building embankments. There's a wall alongside A226 made from old bridge stones. Uh, Two pedestrian alcoves can be found at the eastern end of Victoria Park that were once on the bridge, and there's other remnants scattered around. The new London Bridge would last until 1962 when it was discovered that this London Bridge was now falling down, sinking into the Thames because it's not adequate for the increase in traffic it was uh, facing at the time. It's taken apart and actually randomly later rebuilt in Lake Havasu City, Arizona, after American bought it. Uh, Back to the nursery rhyme now, now that we know a little bit about the bridge. The rhyme could just be about the bridge being dismantled after starting on its own to fall down. Or it could be about those 11th century Vikings that pulled the old wooden precursor to the stone medieval bridge down. Or it could be about human centipede, mouth to butthole to mouth to butthole, full circle, ring around the devil's rosy. Wait, sacrifice. Could be about human sacrifice, not centipede. Uh, need to explain one more thing in order to present the sacrifice theory. In addition to being a popular rhyme, London Bridge is falling down was also once a popular children's game. Not sure if a lot of kids are still playing it. Here's how it was played. Two kids would make an arch, holding their hands up face to face. Uh, the rest of them passing under the arch one by one, creating a circle. I think I played this as a kid. They would continue to walk under the arch, you know, one by one in the circle. When the last word of the verses said, my fair lady, the two kids who formed the arch, they have to capture one child by dropping their hands down, trapping this kid right inside their, their little bridge they're making. And the game continues until each kid has been captured. Sounds innocent at first, but not when combined with a fucked up human sacrifice possible origin story. According to folklorist Alice Bertha Gomes, the traditional games of England, Scotland, and Ireland, uh, originally published in 1894, the song is not just about the bridge falling down from so many fires. It's about blood magic and sacrifice. Legend states that in the olden days, people believed that a bridge would collapse unless the body of a human sacrifice was buried into its foundations. And that, that actually would happen in some places, which is crazy. Um, probably can find a few people who believe that, uh, you know, uh, is how it should be done now with how medieval some people think. Uh, and some think a kid or possibly many kids were killed in some kind of blood sacrifice and their bones were buried into the foundation of the medieval bridge or they were buried alive into the foundation of the bridge. And the occult being buried alive in this way is sometimes called immurement. It's a form of imprisonment, usually until death, in which a person is sealed within an enclosed space with no exits. Yikes. This includes instances when people have been enclosed in extremely tight confinement, such as a coffin buried behind bricks in the foundation of a wall or something. Uh, and that legend makes the Child's London Bridge game where the kids trap the loser with their arms pretty creepy. When used as a means of execution, the prisoner in a mirrorment is simply left to die from starvation, dehydration, or sometimes asphyxiation. So where does the rhyme mention a person being sacrificed? According to this theory, it's the watchman 
You know, said a man to watch all night, my fair lady. Most think that guy was just some dude paid to sit and keep an eye on uh, all the flammable things, alert people to another fire. Some say he was the unfortunate victim that was killed so that his spirit would then watch over the bridge forever. And for some reason, he's a kid, right? He's the watchman is fucking put into the foundation. Uh, People really have faced immurement throughout history. I found an article about an unfortunate Mongolian woman who faced that punishment in the early 20th century, complete with a picture. Awesome. Uh, But no, there is no archaeological evidence for any human remains in the foundations of London Bridge, suggesting this theory is not true. Uh, The nursery rhyme could still be about it, though. But it would just be about the legend as opposed to having uh, any historical factual basis. Pretty crazy to think about. Uh, this, this immurement, like what if they really did put somebody into the bridge? At first I, w- I wanted to be like, get the fuck out of here with that. It's too far. There's no way. There's no way those psychos would do something like put a living kid inside the foundation to die just to make the bridge supposedly stronger. But then I thought about how, uh, one of the earliest historical references to the London bridge is that story of the woman they drowned near the bridge for supposedly pushing pins into some drawing, which meant she was a witch. And I thought about Oliver Cromwell being executed a couple years after he died. His rotting, decapitated head being displayed on the bridge for God knows how long. And that all made me think, oh yeah, okay, sure, why not? A mirror some kid in the foundation, fuck it. Not really crazier than so much other shit going on that we're you know, definitely doing. Thank you, God, uh, universe, whatever, for allowing me to be born in the late 20th century. Not back in those much more savage times. At least, uh, at least not as savage in the Western world here. Okay, enough with Tommy Thumb and his pretty songbook, although there are a few more we could discuss. Another important kid's book came out in 1744. John Newbery, bookseller, publisher. Uh, he set up his business in St. Paul's Churchyard, published his first children's book called The Little Pretty Pocket Book. I definitely did not keep confusing these two books. It came out the same year with almost the exact same name. And I for sure didn't have to stop the recording to go back and look over my notes and go back online and do a bunch more research because I thought I was going crazy. Uh, this book was enormously popular, not just in Europe, but in colonial America as well. Uh, Newbery dedicated it to the parents, guardians, and nurses in Great Britain and Ireland. It's the first book to ever reference the game of baseball, a random trivia in print, uh, referring to the game of rounders, a precursor to baseball, but still. Uh, it was an instant hit. It became apparent to John Newbery that his uh, firm could make substantial profits by publishing more children's tales and rhymes. So he published, you know, more kids' books greatly helping establish children's literature as an important branch of the publishing business. He is now considered the father of children's literature. And every year since 1922, the Newbery Medal, uh, named after him, has been awarded to authors of the most distinguished contributions to American literature for children. His most successful publication was Little Goody Two-Shoes, published in 1766. Uh, Here's a quick rhyme from the little pretty pocketbook called Marbles. Knuckle down to your taw, aim well, shoot away, keep out of the ring, and you'll soon learn to play. And then below it, John writes out the moral of this story, also in rhyme. Moral. Time rolls like a marble, in all's every state, then improve each movement before tis too late. I like that one. Uh, Work on making the most of your life before your life is gone. In 1765, another super famous nursery rhyme showed up, Jack and Jill, published in London in a reprint of John Newbery's Mother Goose's Melody. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. I remember as a kid thinking that was weird. Right? What kind of what kind of water hill were these two dipshits walking up? Why was it so steep? If it was some kind of death trap, uh, why did they have to do it? Why couldn't someone older, stronger, more agile do it? Uh, does breaking a crown equal cracking your skull open? Once again, what in the hell are they talking about here? Some people online think this is coded language alluding to the executions of French uh, King Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette 
And those people are wrong. Uh, they were executed in 1793, well after this rhyme first showed up. Uh, some of the small old English town of Kilmersden, uh, Kilmersden, population 541, claim this rhyme is about a couple in 1697 who used to live there and they'd sneak up on a hill for some time away from their spouses, uh, you know, for a little affair. They have signs and a little path marked off and everything about this. Tourism ploy, maybe. According to this bit of legend, this adulterous affair led to Jill getting pregnant and Jack then somehow dying from falling on a rock and caving his fucking skull in. And then poor Jill allegedly went on to die in childbirth. Another possible dark origin story. Uh, the rhyme has been modified several times over the years with additional lyrics being added. At one point, uh, additional verses were thrown in and, you know, Jack was now okay. Then got, uh, then up Jack got, no, then up got Jack and said to Jill, as in his arms he took her, brush off that dirt for you're not hurt, let's fetch that pail of water. So Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch the pail of water and took it home to Mother Deer who thanked her son and daughters. Now they're, you know, siblings and all that stuff. Uh, now let's talk Mother Goose. The first confirmed collection of nursery rhymes using the term Mother Goose was published in 1780 by a man named John Carnan. Although there are claims of others that go back further. Uh, like mo- almost all the other rhymes we've covered, hard to say who the authors of these tales uh, were. Uh, did I mention there were a lot of fires in England? Burned up a lot of records. Uh, there was, this was another very popular children's book. The illustrations accompanying the publication depicted Mother Goose as an old crone, an old witch. Of course it did. Uh, this is a time of witches and witch hunts. And the Mother Goose Witch's nursery rhymes fell into three distinct categories. First category of Mother Goose nursery rhymes included lullabies such as Rockabye Baby. Second type uh, was for infant amusement and education. Uh, There was like many of the counting and alphabet rhymes in that section. Uh, The third section included riddles like the aforementioned As I Was Going to St. Ives. But who wrote all that shit? Again, yeah, no one knows. Various claims have been made claiming ownership of the term Mother Goose, but I'm not going to bore you with all the details. It would be a uh, pun intended wild goose chase. That would lead to nowhere. Now, let's talk about one of these witches' rhymes. Starting with Rockabye Baby, a classic, another banger. Uh, if you think about it, the popular nursery rhyme, Rockabye Baby, contains some pretty, obviously, dark lyrics. Rockabye baby on the treetops. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come baby, cradle and all. Who the fuck put a baby up in a tree? Why do we need to hear about a branch breaking and a baby, I'm guessing, falling and dying? And most fucked up, why are we reading this shit to actual babies? Feels super dark. At quick glance to me, it comes across as basically singing to your baby, Rock-a-bye baby left up in the tree. Nobody loves you, can't you see? You're not safe, better learn to crawl. (laughs) Climb and to crawl. Good luck, stupid baby, bound to die when you fall. It's a cold world, baby! Only the strong survive. Uh, where might this disturbing nursery rhyme come from? Some claim that the impetus of Rockabye Baby comes from the real-life Kenyan family of Derbyshire. Uh, not Derbyshire. <laughs> Derbyshire. Derbyshire. Not, not hobbits. I remember the feedback. A Kenyan family of Derbyshire, England. Back in the 1700s, lunatics, Kate and Luke Kenyon, and their eight children, apparently actually lived in a hollowed-out yew tree. Tree was massive and old, perhaps as old as 2,000 years. According to legend, the Kenyans hollowed out one of the branches of the tree, made it a cradle for their babies. Fun times in the days before social workers checked in on the welfare welfare of children. Who the fuck were these people? Uh, Tucked safely into the tree branch, uh, the child could be lulled to sleep by the movement of the tree in the wind. Okay, well, that's kind of sweet, actually. And I guess none of their kids fell off a branch and died, so maybe I shouldn't judge these tree folks so harshly. 
Apparently, the yew tree still exists in the woods outside of uh, Derbyshire. There are some pictures online. It was damaged in the 1930s when vandals lit a fire inside of it. Uh, another possible origin story for Rockabye Baby claims that the lyrics were based on the written observations of a pilgrim boy uh, new to the new world. The young child witnessed Native American mothers placing their infants in sturdy cradles made from birch bark. These cradles were then hung from trees uh, from low branches, uh, and the soothing motion of the wind would gently rock the babies to sleep, freeing up the moms to do their other work. And that actually is very sweet. Seems less crazy than the whole family living in a tree. But you know, if those tree folk are happy, who cares? I, re I retract my previous tree folk judgments. Live your life, tree people. If you're not hurting anyone, I shouldn't care. Uh, still others say the Rockabye Baby was not meant to be a nursery rhyme. Instead, it was an allegory about political unrest. It was a 17th century Rage Against the Machine song, but without Morello's great riffs and De La Roca's passion and without being, you know, good and stuff. In this origin story, uh, the ditty was supposedly penned in a British pub during the glorious revolution of 1688. The lyrics referred to the new heir to the throne born to King James II of England and actually expressed the hope that the infant prince would die so that the reign of King James II could then be overthrown. Kill the baby, kill the baby, kill the baby. Probably not true. Just a theory. And not one supported by any firsthand written account accounts. Uh, not that those would exist because if they did, their authors would have been, you know, killed if those accounts were discovered. More head lopping. More recent claim states that Rockabye Baby was written by Effie Crockett, cousin of the legendary Davy Crockett. And this claim is really fucking stupid because uh, we know that Rockabye Baby was first published in an earlier form, probably in 1765 in England by good old John Newbery in Mother Goose's Melody. It was definitely reprinted in Boston in 1785 and Effie Crockett was not born until 1857. Some historians contend the song was around for more than 200 years before being first published, going back into the 17th century, and that makes Effie Crockett a fucking liar. Effie, Effie Crockett, queen of the nursery rhyme liars. Uh, she composed a version of this uh, nursery rhyme in 1886, took credit for the whole damn thing, uh, got registered as the author of the song, and then now her name is in the credits of almost 200 movies and TV shows as uh, the song's author on IMDb. There is a moral to this tale. It's okay to put babies in trees because just like how trees and breaking branches will always be replaced by more trees and branches, the world's never had a baby shortage. So, you know, fuck them. Or there's a different moral message. In the Mother Goose's Melody, the nursery rhyme is said to serve as a cautionary tale. A footnote to the verse reads, this may serve as a warning to the proud and ambition. Ambitious, I guess, who climb so high that they generally fall at last. I don't know, John Newbury. I think you're stretching with that one. No way that baby climbed up that tree. That baby was put there. That baby was murdered. Maybe the cautionary tale should be don't be helpless like a whiny little weak-ass baby because then you've made it pretty easy for someone to kill you. And uh, pretty crazy that Effie Crockett was able to get her name there. <laughs> I mean, uh, people at the time just didn't realize that she had plagiarized that song. They thought it was original and it's stuck to this day. She still gets credit in shows and stuff. Uh, let's continue down the timeline. I think we all uh, know this next one. Humpty Dumpty. There is a uh, there's an Indian Humpty Dumpty video done in Hindi. Uh, not the nursery rhyme. He shows up in a kid's show and it has over 2.7 billion views in the last three years. A nursery rhyme video from seven years ago has 825 million views, right? There is so much popularity around Humpty still. Uh, this version of the nursery rhyme I'm about to play for you fucking sucks. And it still has over 13.5 million views. Again. 
That sounds like one person with a Casio keyboard recorded it in one take with no rehearsal. Uh, usually represented by an egg, Humpty Dumpty remains one of the most famous characters in the history of English nursery rhymes. Been a hit for over 200 years, dates back to the early 19th century, first found in a manuscript of Mother Goose's Melody in 1803. First published in uh, Gammer Gurdon's Garland in 1810, uh, it was actually a riddle, uh, with the answer to the riddle being that Humpty Dumpty was an egg. Seriously, he was never mentioned in the rhyme as being an egg, but we know him as an egg, mainly because he was drawn that way. According to the Oxford English Dictionary in 17th century, or in the 17th century, Humpty Dumpty was the name of a kind of brandy. Term also used a slang to describe a dull or rotund person. There are, are several versions of the lyrics. The first printed version goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Three score men and three score more cannot place Humpty Dumpty as he was before. Uh, the version we know now is, uh, you know, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Definitely used to say that one a bunch when I was little. I feel like learning a bunch of these did help me with memorization. Also had some uh, questions and concerns about this one. If Humpty was so damn fragile, why was he up on the fucking wall? I, I'm pretty sure I asked my grandma that. If you're some kind of weird, fragile egg person, stay off of walls. Stay out of trees. You got to be careful. When you sleep, make sure that the mattress is on the floor and surround yourself with guardrails. There's a lot of situations that can go real wrong for you real quick. Back to the question of uh, Mr. Dumpty being an egg. The lyrics never explicitly say that again. Some speculate that instead of uh, Humpty Dumpty being an egg, he was actually a, a big old cannon, which sat upon a church tower in Colchester. He sat there until a barrage of cannonballs destroyed the tower and sent Humpty into the marshland below. That's how he, that's why he fell. Plenty of people died as a result. When the cannon was finally recovered, they were never, never able to fix the cannon back up to its former glory, never able to get it back up there. That origin story makes sense to me. Pretty cool. I buy it. One of the most popular nursery rhymes, perhaps uh, most commonly associated with dark origins, Ring Around the Rosie. Classic. Published first in 1881 in England. This one is interesting. The most famous part, at least today, goes like this. Ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. I have a flash memory of singing that verse with the neighbor girl. Early friend, Sarah Lawrence. I couldn't have been uh, even in kindergarten yet. We held hands, we spun around, we smiled and laughed, and we fell down. Uh, the name of the folk song and singing game in the U.S. is Ring Around the Rosie. Its original name is Ring, Ring a Ring of Roses. First published in 1881, believed by folklorists and historians to exist at least 100 years earlier in some form. Uh, there are now some pretty interesting versions of this uh, little ditty on the web. I, uh, I like this metal version by Sam Kirshner. Ring Around the Rosie, Yeah, bro. Very, very metal. Uh, now to the dark origin claims. Many people think this song is all about the Great Plague of 1665 in London that ravaged the city, killing a big chunk of the London's of London's population, which it did. That plague killed an estimated 100,000 people, almost a quarter of London's population in just 18 months. To put that kind of carnage in perspective. Uh, as I did the research, COVID currently blamed for 742,000 deaths in the U.S. If COVID was as untreatable and lethal as the bubonic plague back in 1665, it would have killed 82,375,000 by now in this country alone. A quarter of the total population of uh, 329,500,000 would have killed over 111 times the amount it has killed. Think about how many conspiracies we be floating around now if that many people died. 
We'd be living in a fucking wasteland. America would have broken off into crazy little dystopian factions by now. Be a full-on Mad Max life. Uh, according to this plague origin theory, the rosy represents the red rash that covered plague victims, while many carried a pocket full of posies to prevent breathing in the smell, right? The, the evil demon essence of the afflicted. People, that's, people thought you got the plague by sniffing it. They didn't know what germs were yet. Uh, the last line, we all fall down. Pretty self-explanatory. Death. Interesting origin story feels plausible, but is it? Mm, maybe. A lot of people think probably not. It doesn't seem that anyone made that association back in the 19th century when it was actually published. The idea that the song was about the plague only came after the lyrics had been changed in the 20th century, so that's suspicious. Uh, here are the original lyrics. Ring around, ring a ring of roses, pocket full of, a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. The king has sent his daughter to fetch a pail of water, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. The bird upon the steeple sits high above the people, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. The cows are in the meadow, lying fast asleep, a tissue, a tissue, we all get up again. So that sounds like a happy ending. Uh, you know, uh, maybe at least the end of a pandemic, I don't know. Why was it changed to we all fall down? Maybe just to make it a fun kids game where you literally fall down. And man, so much easier to fall as a little kid, by the way. Like I used to love falling down. Right now, fall down game, fucking suck. I would refuse to play. I'm not gonna fall on the damn ground. Are you kidding me? It's gonna mess my back up, my knees. Might not get up for a while. Uh, the origins of this song, not fully understood. The plague feels possible, but not likely. Uh, a tissue, it seems to infer obviously sneezing. And while the plague, uh, you know, did have symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and fever, it wasn't really known for sneezing. Not a signature sign of the disease. It wasn't uh, primarily spread through airborne transmission. Although pneumonic plague and airborne version did exist, did develop in uh, some people in the outbreak, but primarily by far spread through the bites of fleas carried around mainly by rats. Fleas carrying that bacterium, you know, uh, oh boy, your, your senior pestis. Uh, another rhyme with a possible dark backstory, Little Miss Muffet. At the very least, this is a weird ass nursery rhyme. I remember thinking it was super weird as a kid. Little Miss Muffet, she sat on her tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider who sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. There's a legend that Little Miss Muffet was inspired by a real-life girl and her weird stepfather, Dr. Thomas Muffet, a notorious physician and entomologist from the 16th century. And the real Dr. Muffet did study spiders, amongst many other things. He was the author of a scientific illustrated guide about insects. And the legend is that he apparently fed mashed-up spiders to his stepdaughter in her curds and whey for some unknown reason. Highly unlikely. Much more likely that people who were afraid of spiders just thought he was a fucking weirdo for studying him, for studying spiders when, you know, people didn't do shit like that. And they made up a clever little rhyme about what life must have been like for his stepdaughter. And then there is Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater. Uh, I don't know if you know this. At the time that was written, pumpkin was the slang for female genitalia, for pussy. Uh, keep that in mind when you hear these lyrics. Changes it a bit. Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater. Had a wife but couldn't keep her. He put her in a pumpkin shell, and there he kept her very well. Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had another and didn't love her. Peter learned to read and spell, and then he loved her very well. So following the meaning of pumpkin when this came out, first published in 1825, Peter liked to go down on the ladies. His wife got mad, so he put her inside someone else's vagina. And then he kept going back down on other ladies. Then he went back to school, and he got a good degree and a better job, and he took his wife out of that vagina that she was trapped in, and they lived, you know, um, happily ever after. Pretty straightforward. No tricky symbolism or hidden meanings. Of course, that's crazy talk. Uh, pumpkin was not slang for pussy. Uh, that rhyme might actually be a dark one. Some historians believe that Peter the pumpkin eater got tired of his wife cheating on him, so he fucking killed her. And he hid her body 
you know, chopped up her body and hid the remains in a, in a pumpkin. I don't know. Uh, I don't necessarily see that, but that's, uh, that's what many people who have studied this stuff far more in depth than I have say. Okay. We've looked at a lot of hits now. The majority of the main claims about the dark history of nursery rhymes in the English language. Uh, while there doesn't seem to be as much darkness in these as uh, some think there is, there certainly is some. Now let's jump out of the timeline. Take a look at a few nursery rhymes from other cultures. <laughs> Mostly just Russia. Oh boy. My favorite part of this episode. And find out how dark or not they may be. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Fucking Russia. If I had to pick one country outside of the U.S. to consistently research, it's got to be Russia. I find so many stories there darkly hilarious. It's just so so grim and nihilistic in various points in its uh, history. Uh, to be fair to Russia here, the nursery rhymes I've picked uh, to read first come from Ben Rosenfield, uh, son of, a, of Jewish Russian immigrants. And he is a comedian, not a historian. Also took a bunch of traditional uh, Russian nursery rhymes, translated them into English with accompanying artwork in a very funny book called I think, Russian optimism, dark nursery rhymes to cheer you right up. Some Russian readers in the comments section under the book do say that uh, some of the wit and context is lost in translation. But even if they're distorted after finding these, I could not uh, not share them with you. I hope you find them as amusing as I do. Allow me to read several in a shitty Russian accent over some stereotypical old-timey Russian music. This first one is called Brighter Side. In my childhood, my mom gouged out my eyes so that I wouldn't find the jam. Now I don't watch movies and don't read fairy tales. But on the bright side, I smell and hear very well. I hope you like that rhyme. Here another one called Digging a Hole. A little boy was digging a hole in the ground. Suddenly his shovel hit metal. His arms are on the pine tree, his balls on the oak tree. You should be more careful playing with landmines. Not too dark, maybe. Just life in Russia. Next one, pretty light and funny. It's called Mom's Bedroom. From Mom's Bedroom, a crooked-legged cripple emerged. It was Dad. I walk same way. Our gene pool is bad. This next ditty called Old Lawnmower. An old man was cutting lawn. His blade caught a pair of lovers. The red blood covered the grass. Don't fuck in the morning. It's more poetic and kid-friendly in Russia. Three more. <laughs> Here one called Mom's Gifts. Mom gave her kids some gifts. Peter got axe. Sergey got metal pick. Misha got crowbar. Vasek got knife. Their drunk neighbor doesn't bother them anymore. You have to be strong in Russia to survive. This one called Cherries. The kids stole some cherries from a yard. Grandma very, very happy. Thankfully, she coated the trees with poison. The village will have lots of memorial services. Do you get it? Because all, all the, kid, the kids died and that, for stealing the chair to eat them with the poison. Last one. This is my favorite. This one called The Rustler. What is big deal? I make you squeal. I rustle you. I rustle you. What is big deal? It limp for real. I rustle you. I rustle you. What is big deal? I do bit of stabbing. Stop blabbing. I just rustle you for I shake a tail, and that is what I do. Go to sleep now, stupid baby Russian person. It's the last one a little bit darker. So maybe not real. Uh, okay. Maybe I made up those last one. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. Did Ben make up the previous ones? Maybe. But if he did, he also got a bunch of online reviewers to vouch for their authenticity. I hope they're real. 
<laughs> I hope some version of them is real and I hope they're super old. Uh, here's a traditional Russian uh, nursery rhyme. Lullaby not from that collection. This one is pretty well known. You can find a lot of videos of it. First published in 1811 is called Bayou Bayushki Bayou, aka the Russian wolf lullaby. Sleep, sleep, sleep. Don't lie too close to the edge of the bed. Or little gray wolf will come and grab you by the flank, drag you into the woods underneath the willow root. Hey. So probably rhymes, you know, in Russian. Comes across pretty fucked up. <laughs> Goes, comes across uh, a pretty pretty uh, brutal lullaby there. Just go to sleep. Go to sleep. Or scary wolf come bite you on back. Sink fang deep. Make you weep. Drag you screaming so much blood. Lay in heap. Lay in heap. And die in cold wolf den. Uh, is there a moral to the story? I don't know. Maybe, but I can't find it. Original meaning, I think it uh, just might be that, you know, you got to keep an eye out for hungry wolves. And you're never safe. Russia, what's a country? Uh, Russia isn't the only other country with some interesting bedtime stories. Check out this sweet Portuguese nursery rhyme from Brazil called Nana Nene. Not sure when it was first printed, but it seems to have been around for a long time. It invokes the kuka, a crocodile hag monster thing from local legends. The story seems to focus on the idea that parents are not able to protect their kids. It's very comforting. Features an ox monster, a boogeyman called uh, Bicho Papayo, who lurks around on the roof. And uh, translation here is, hush little baby. (laughs) Hush little baby. I'm not making this up. Hush little baby, Kuka is coming to get you. Papa went to the fields. Mama went to work. Black-faced ox, come grab this child who is scared of grimaces. Boogeyman, get off the roof. Let this child sleep peacefully. Who the fuck is singing that? <laughs> Kid. And then there is uh, Dormete Nino, lullaby sung in Spain, various Latin American countries, several different versions. Again, not sure when it first came around. Seems to be pretty old. Warns kids that if you don't go to fucking sleep, a shape-shifting monster called the Cuco will eat you. So listen to your parents. The English translation uh, the most of the most known version is sleep, little one, sleep already, or the Coco will come and take you away. Sleep, little one, sleep already, or the cocoa will come and eat you up, right? Go to sleep, or a fucking monster is going to find you and eat your little dumb ass. On Haiti, they have a similar song, but the, uh, the monster there is a big crab. And in Iceland, so, so much weird folklore in Iceland, maybe the king of weird folklore, uh, unnamed classic from at least as far back as 1936, apparently translates into, sleep, you black-eyed pig, fallen, t- <laughs> this would kill me. It's so dumb. Sleep, you black-eyed pig, fall into a deep pit of ghosts. What the fuck? <laughs> I love the line, fall, in, fall into a deep pit of ghosts. If you don't go to bed, you're going to fall into a ghost pit. What the hell is going on over there? What the hell is going on everywhere with these rhymes? Uh, let's recap. How dark was the uh, dark history of nursery rhymes? Was it as fucked up as you thought it would be? Did we skip some that you, you know, thought were darker? Uh, maybe there's a lot of them out there. They, these ones were darker in many ways than I expected, but also uh, nursery rhymes more helpful than I realized when it comes to how we begin to learn language. I was amazed by how many of these I had not thought about in years, and yet I still remember the words and melodies, acoustic and coding works. I mean, it like time traveled me. Hearing some of these, I was, I was back in Riggins. I was sitting in my grandparents' backyard playing patty cake, patty cake with Grandma Betty, uh, you know, sitting in my Great grandma Stell's, you know, um, living room floor, you know, singing some of these nursery rhymes with her. 
it's uh, it's pretty cool that connection to our past. I they have a lot of value, you know, these things. I hope we don't get rid of them. Such a cool link to the past. If I have grandkids someday, I like that I, you know, I'll know more about nursery rhymes and I read them to them now. I'll probably skip the Russian ones. But I probably will still read them some uh, some of the dark ones that we went over today to make myself chuckle and I will feel okay laughing about that thanks to understanding the comedic theory of benign violation. Time now for today's top 5 takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, of course, a lot of famous nursery rhymes are dark. They were written in dark times and reflect the dark thoughts of those times. The life of the average peasant in medieval England was fucking terrible. And average peasants, you know, probably the people who first started singing those little ditties to the little babies. Number two, most of the authors of these nursery rhymes are unknown. Collections such as Mother Goose uh, represent several authors coming up with rhymes over decades, if not centuries, that were passed around via an oral tradition. Uh, number three, reading nursery rhymes to your kids, despite a lot of weird details and themes and sometimes dark origins, is still very good for them. Helps uh, develop all sorts of cognitive skills, and educators believe it'll make them better readers, writers, and thinkers later on. So read those nursery rhymes. Number four, what the fuck was going on in Russia with those especially horrific nursery rhymes? How much has been lost in translation, and how much is actually that bad? Number five, new info close out our expedition through the dark history of nursery rhymes, let's check out a stand-up comic who ended up becoming the first comic to ever sell out Madison Square Garden in New York City two nights in a row, thanks largely to old nursery rhymes, a lot of the ones we went over today. His profane parodies of nursery rhymes became his signature bits, possibly the first stand-up I ever heard when one of his tapes got passed around when I was in grade school, Andrew Dice Clay, real name, Andrew Clay Silverstein, huge in the 80s, peaked in 1990 when he sold out those Madison Square Garden shows. Let me share some of uh, his rhymes, starting with the parody of Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill went up the hill to have some hanky-panky. Silly Jill forgot a pill, and now there's little Frankie. Here's a twist on Mary Had a Little Lamb. Mary had a little lamb. Her father shot it dead. Now it goes to school with her between two chunks of bread. Oh! Here's a fun one about pies. Simple Simon met a pieman going to the fair. Said Simple Simon to the pieman, what have you got there? Said the pieman unto Simon, pies, you dickhead. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, two more. Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard to fetch a poor doggy a bone. When she bent over, Rover took over and gave her a bone of his own. Hey, uh, I may have memorized that one. Somewhere around sixth grade. <laughs> Last one, very, very short one. Little boy blue. Hey, he needed the money. Uh, none of those jokes would have ever worked if his large audience didn't have the original rhymes memorized, which they did, thanks to that acoustic encoding. You know, they had to memorize from childhood pretty thoroughly and immediately understood how he violated the expected, expected pattern when he parodied them. That benign violation, you know, comedy theory we talked about earlier, worked like a champ. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Dark history of nursery rhymes has been sucked. Oh! I hope you enjoyed all that learning as much as I did. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Thanks to Zach Flannery, the script keeper, for once again tackling the initial research this week. Thanks to Elixir for uh, keeping the Time Suck app running smooth. Logan, the art warlock, Keith, our creative director, creating all the merch at badmagicmerch.com and more. Thanks to Liz, the enchantress Hernandez, running Cult of the Curious to our current Cult of the Curious Facebook page private page, along with her wonderful All Seen Eyes moderators, and she helps Logan with socials as well. 
Uh, thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod, Mod Squad keeping over 10,000 meat sacks happy over on Discord. And our space lizards chose this week's topic. I'm choosing next week's. And once again, we are going to go cult, cult, cult. For the first time in a cult episode, we're heading to Japan. We're talking about the Am uh, Shinrikyo, or Supreme Truth Doomsday Cult, led by Shoko Ashara, uh, nearly blind, or Asahara, excuse me, uh, Shoko Asahara, nearly blind acupuncturist, former schoolyard bully, nicknamed the Japanese Charles Manson. Am started in the 1980s as a harmless, empowering spiritual group. They often start off so harmless. Shoko uh, Asahara combined Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, elements of Christian apocalyptic prophecies into a new age spiritual enlightenment focused religion. Asahara claimed to be both Christ and the first enlightened one since Buddha walked the earth. Fuck yeah. Jesus, Buddha, if you're going to be a cult leader, always uh, fun to go real big. Why stop at one deity? Combo that shit, right? Add some Buddha fries to your Christ burger. Asahara gained a global following, spoke at universities, wrote numerous books. At the peak of the cult's power, Om had close to 50,000 members worldwide, and then eventually, as cult leaders are wont to do, he shifted away from spiritual empowerment and more towards the world is ending soon. Come with me if you want to live. He predicted that the U.S. was going to start World War III with Japan, bringing about the end of civilization, and the only survivors would, of course, be Om members. Unlike a lot of cult leaders, he was not content to sit around and wait for the apocalypse. He decided to help kick it off. He ordered his followers to launch biological and chemical warfare attacks on major cities in Japan. Their most devastating attack occurred on uh, March 20th, 1995, when they planted sarin gas in Tokyo subways, killed 13 people, injured thousands. Not their only attack, Am preached violence. He ordered anyone who opposed him to be destroyed. How does his story end? Well, World War III is still not upon us, so he didn't get what he wanted. Uh, But to find out what he did get, you got to listen next week. Right now, we got Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. First update, super sucker and accent expert, Stephen Georgie. Somehow not blown away by my French impressions in the Dr. Satan suck last week. He writes, this is going to be a short message, but Dan, I just wanted to say I love how every time you try to pull off an Italian accent or French accent, it turns into Mario. I love it, bro. It's hilarious. Well, thank you, Stephen. I'm glad you and the overwhelming majority of time suckers do not listen uh, weekly for accurate ethnic impressions. And can just have fun with a lot of my nonsense. <laughs> and, uh, I like a, I like a Mario. I like a Mario. Uh, now I may have recently gotten a military meat sack dishonorably discharged. Almost. Luckily I didn't. Jeremy, last name redacted, explains, let me just start off with saying, fuck you, Dan. I got Cummins lot. Yesterday I was working at my job, which is in the military, while listening to your podcast and my earbuds. I was listening to the dolphin sex suck when you started going into detail about dolphin dicks. At that specific moment, a full bird colonel comes walking up, starts talking to me. Now, we're not technically supposed to wear earbuds while we work in the military, so I took them out as a sign of respect when the podcast starts playing on my phone now. Played for approximately 10 seconds, 10 seconds of pure, complete, utter torture, as you explain the size of dolphin dicks. I've never seen an officer walk away so fast. Anyway, sorry for the long message. Love the podcast. Love the topics. Oh, and your voice is the only voice I can stand on the podcast, by the way. So you have a time sucker for life. P.S. If you read this on the show, can you leave my last name out? Yeah, last name redacted, Jeremy. Uh, so glad you did not get in trouble. Also, also glad you like my voice. I can't handle hearing it myself. It's always it's always far less manly when I listen. I'm like, ah, that's how I sound, son of a bitch. I'm, I'm, and I always think, man, my mouth really is mushy. Okay. Uh, that's a hilarious 10 seconds for someone to hear out of context. Guessing that officer still thinks about that from time to time. 
I worry about our future, Amy. Dolphin dicks. One of the guys was listening, learning about dolphin dicks when he's supposed to be upgrading our computers. What kind of world is it anymore? What kind of, what's the world coming to when all people care about is dolphin dicks? A uh, quick Oregon Trail update from funny sucker Brian Hood. Brian writes, Dear Dan, thanks to your last suck. We have rediscovered the Oregon Trail game. My son has had cholera, a broken arm, leg, lost food to thieves, and dumped his wagon in the drink and still lived. He's like the John Wick of the Oregon Trail. <laughs> Thanks for the good times, Brian. Dude, that John Wick reference killed me. So good. I love those movies, by the way. Uh, I'm so glad you have uh, an indestructible son. Also, uh, got some new Michael motherfucking McDonald info. It's getting harder and harder to learn something new about the guy since I've already looked into so much. But Meat Sack musical historian Brian McVicker just blew my mind. He wrote, Dear Triple M worshiper, master of the suck, spoon launching marauder, etc. I expect you might know this. I didn't, but in case you don't, Triple M apparently worked on the Van Halen album 1984. What the fuck? Pretty cool. I expect you'll talk about this on Time Suck at some point. Time Suck rocks. Keep it up, master. Brian, uh, did not know this, Brian. Yeah, uh, found out thanks to you. Uh, thanks for the link you sent in the video. I listened to it. Yeah, David Lee Roth got a hold of Michael McDonald. He was having some songwriting problems working on 1984. Uh, they brought in Michael McDonald to help write uh, I'll Wait. And then McDonald helped write some of the verses and he wrote the chorus. And then Van Halen tried to cut Triple M out of the songwriting credit. He got pissed, you know, talked to some people, uh, some management. And uh, then while he was not initially credited, he was credited later. And he's, you know, made sure to get all his royalties. Don't fuck with Triple M. He doesn't take it. Uh, let me play some of that chorus. This is, this is Triple M's words sung by David Lee Roth and Van Halen. They were, that's a great album, by the way. I mean, that is a great 80s album. Uh, very cool Triple M trivia, Brian. Thank you. Uh, and let's end on more levity. Super sucking Sarah from Mississippi. Probably has to move now. Or, like she's like she'll talk about, she has to wait a long time for new neighbors to move in because she's ruined her relationship, possibly with a lot of her neighbors. Sad for her, funny for us. She writes, hey, Dan, I wanted to write in and let you know how much you just fucked up our luck with all our new neighbors. To preface, the housing market has hit our neighborhood pretty good. Lots of zero... Lot homes close together with lots of brand new neighbors we haven't met yet. Lots of little kids. Lots. And to make a clear understanding of how they are grouped together, there is a long treeless valley of backyards lining up together with more houses and their backyards directly adjacent. Ours being right in the center. So last weekend, I told my husband all about the Princess Diana episode. And to my surprise, he, who is not into podcasts, asked me to listen again so he could too. So we settled on our patio at dusk with drinks in hand, getting ready for a sucky evening. We decided to spike up a fire in our little fire bowl midway through the episode. Oh, that's fun. I picked up my phone and, and, a, and a patio chair at the same time to move closer to the fire. Without my consent, my palm turned the volume up full blast on our patio speaker right during a Whipple sponsor break. Fuck your families! Rings out across our backyard and neighborhood so loudly it rumbled the ground beneath our feet. The once chatty neighborhood of kids out jumping on trampolines and playing driveway basketball fell silent, literally crickets. So yeah, thanks. We laughed about it, tried to make ourselves feel better, but we both know in the pit of our stomachs we'll have to wait until the next wave of new neighbors comes through. <laughs> of your content, discovered it last year through Scared to Death. It has gotten me through some long shifts at work. Keep up the good work. Can't wait for Monday. Sucker like the rest. Cummins Law inductee down in Mississippi. Picturing the scenario you described makes me laugh so hard, Sarah. Thank you uh, for sharing uh, your trauma. <laughs> Again, 
so hard to explain. It's coming to a lot of situations. Uh, always funny when it's not you. Uh, enjoy your week, everyone. Hail Nimrod to you all. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to this Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Maybe put more thought into what uh, bedtime ditties. Sing it to your ba- babies or don't. Just have fun. Sing them, sing them with a sinister smile. I mean, they're too dumb to figure out what you're really saying anyway. Fucking babies, am I right? Oh, keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Hmm. I come up with one of my own. Maybe something related to the Suck Dungeon. Hmm. Hickory Dickory Dock. Joe's still on the clock, but he's not at his desk with all of the rest. He's in the bathroom again, touching his cock. <laughs> Dude. Hey. I drink a bunch of water. You know that. It's for my head. It's not just so I can touch my cock. I do that too, but it's not just about that. He does, he does get headaches if he gets thirsty. Still a good rhyme.